0: Or listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys. The Running Public.
1: Week three, Kirk. Week three. Of? Not missing workouts. Wow. Congratulations. You hit everything you've scripted to this point?
0: Yeah. Big deal. Do I look like I'm dragging?
1: No. You look like a man who knows his worth today, Bracken. <laughs> oh. And your eyes match your shirt.
0: Oh, yeah. This this color right here yeah. is what Lisa prefers me in.
1: I can see why. I want to jump through the screen right now, Bracken. Tackle you.
0: Gobble me right up. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> My eyes are not... I can't choose what color they are because any whatever sunlight I'm in or whatever shirt I'm wearing or color I'm in, it kind of morphs to that. Is that what they call hazel? I think so. I have a version of it, but it's a little different than yours. So I guess. My whole life, I thought I had brown eyes, but anytime I wear green shirts or anything like that, I have green eyes. So I believe hazel is
1: either a combination of like green and brown or green and blue. I mm. think you can, any mixture of that.
0: I mean, there's a color in nature that's categorized as hazel which is a brownish color. But when it comes to eyes, I feel like it stands for like a amorphous blend of colors. Yeah. You can't really define it. You don't ever notice my eyes until I wear green. And then, and then it's like, Oh, you have eyes <laughs> and they're green <laughs> and they're green today. Well, I'm just paying
1: you all the compliments. Go on, go on. Tell us about how good you are.
0: Oh, no, I'm not. I'm on the mound. Like I'm, I'm approaching that, the hump. As in fatigue has amounted, but your fitness isn't any better quite yet? Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I'm starting to get used to working again. So last week was one big state of fatigue and exhaustion. And I talked about that a bit. And like joints, like connective tissue is all kind of barking. Even though I wasn't doing big mileage, it was big time on feet comparative to what I had been doing this week. So, for example, last Tuesday, I did Alpine Valley hill reps. I did four miles of hill reps. It's a half mile up, half mile down. It's a great hill. I did four reps. Great hill. Great hill. And it's easy math. Yeah. Up, down is a mile. And then I did four miles on the trail afterwards to get to 90 minutes. And yesterday I did five reps. So then I had to do less miles afterwards and, and got to 90 minutes, hit the same mileage a little earlier. So just like little bits of improvement, but I was able to handle the hill better. But last week soleus calf were a mess through Saturday after Tuesday. Mm. And today I could go out and will at right after this, actually, I, I'm going to go run outside where last week on this day, my recovery Wednesday, I did an hour on the assault bike and then power hike for a half hour. Today, I'm going to go run for an hour and then I'll do an assault bike after that. So it's already like the, the the way I'm reacting to training is already changing a little bit.
1: Well, you're building up that resistance to impact and. One of the quickest ways, but also one of the most painful ways to do that is start going up, but then having to go down afterwards, that'll do it.
0: And that's intentional. I have nine weeks, nine and a half weeks until the Tennessee mile.
1: Yeah. You got to get going on that. And that's a great, that's a great hill to do it on. Cause that almost simulates what you're going through in the race. Yeah.
0: yeah. It's like both downhills are combined into that downhill and both uphills are combined where one's a little more gradual and one's a power hiking.
1: But your ratio of up and down is going to be nearly the same.
0: Correct which is yeah. kind of the key there. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I get to test both styles and and I, I ripped one of the downhills and I took my crown back. Ho, ho, ho. Suck it, Jordan Buscemi. <laughs> <laughs> Jordan snagged it from me. You and I and John Penland were the leaders from a time we've done five fingers over there. It was like a 60 minute workout we did. And one of our downhills, we set the record. He came out and he attacked the downhill and smashed our time. I think we were something like 123, and he came out and went 111, or we were like 130. He went 111. But we
1: did that in the middle of a 30 minute tempo effort up and down the ski hill.
0: Yeah, so we were going downhill at like 445, 430 pace on that. When we, I think it was probably on the last rep when we just whatever we had left at the end of that 40 minute. unloaded, and he did like 349 pace going down that thing fast. And so last week I decided to rip my last rep just to see how close I could get to the, and I missed it by like five seconds. And last week I thought, yeah, I left, I left a couple seconds here or there. Maybe I missed it by like 10 or 11. So I missed it by a lot. I wasn't close, but I thought I left five or six seconds out there. Well, this time on that fourth rep again, I did it and then still had another hill rep after to keep me honest. And in the middle of it, I went over one little section and thought, oh, I just lost one second there. And then if it, it gets down to the fire road at the bottom, the last 300 meters, and you can just rip. And while I was running, I thought, I can't do this any faster. If I don't get it today, it won't happen for like a month or two until I'm significantly more fit. And his time was one eleven, and I went one ten. Ooh, did you get a (laughs) message from him after after this? No, not yet. But Robbie Gingerich uh, commented on there that I was a clown, (laughs) (laughs) which is also true. Which is also true. Uh I didn't plan to get it by a second. I was at max capacity. I just I was lucky. It was probably like a tenth or two that I snuck it by. But again, it was in the middle of a workout. Segment chasing is
1: for cheap shots, man. But everybody does it, including myself. And it's also kind of fun. And it also kind of makes the time go, we'll say, during a workout. So uh, I'm okay with it. I I told you what I'm going to do, right? I told you what I'm going to do, right, one day? You're going to show up unannounced
0: and and rip it.
1: I'm going to come down and make the five-and-a-half-hour drive down. I'm going to go right to that ski hill. I'm going to rip the shit out of it. And then I'll call him be like Bracken, I'm in town.
0: And then I'll upload it to Strava. And you're going to do Lake Geneva's lake path too. I'm going to do that one too. Yeah. yeah. Now the first, now it's about 500 meters. The segment isn't the whole hill because there are three ski hills that join up for that segment. So it starts from the bottom, the lowest one or the top of the lowest. So you missed the first 200 meters or 300, but so it's 200 meters of my type of descent. And then it's 300 meters of your type of descent.
1: Your type of descent is super steep, super technical, lots of shit in the way. And my type of descent, not is, smooth running, right? Is like 15% fire road.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. and I would say this fire road's like 10, and the other part's 20, but technical. So it's actually a good meeting ground for us. Or I'm going to get to the fire road first, and then you're going to have 300 meters to run me down. I like the sound of that. So, anyways, I I ripped it up. I kept three forty-six mile pace for the average. So that's, that's about as fast as I can physically run at this point, but my body feels better than last time I I took it back. I know Jordan's going to go back and retake it. So now I've got to build my fitness so I can, so I can go after that man. I approve. He's a good downhill runner. Yeah, he is. He's a good aggressive runner.
1: Yeah. I haven't updated people on my training for a little bit uh, because of, The current circumstances, I've basically been walking out my front door and running from home, just staying close to home. I've had family in town. And part of that was I left uh, going uphill and downhill alone for like three weeks. And I did my first true workout at Incline this morning. um, And it was very humbling. So if it makes you feel any better, Bracken, I am light years behind where I have been in my climbing prowess. So I did one of my favorites. All my athletes are going to nod their head when I say this workout. It's seven minutes on at 15% incline and three minutes power hike recovery at 15% incline. Typically, power hike recovery happens about two miles an hour, which is recovery. And then you run uphill as fast or as hard as you can and sustain. And, um, you know, I'm typically a negative splitter, Bracken. Yes, you are. And I did that for about half the workout. And then the positive splits happened as if like a piano fell from the sky on my back. It was very humbling. My heart rate got up to 180 in the first two minutes of those seven minute reps and stayed there. Um, which I haven't seen on the roads, no matter how hard I try, I can't get it there. It just shows the power of going uphill, man. Something about fighting gravity like that got a cardiac response out of me more than any of these workouts I've done on flat terrain. And I've worked really hard close to home in these last few weeks, nothing compared to going uphill, fighting gravity. So like, just a reminder, I was like, dang, Kirk, you got to get back on your shit, brother. So that's where I'm at.
0: Yeah, it's hills are humbling.
1: They really are, man. And I've even lost a few pounds through this. I lost a few pounds because I wasn't really eating the first week. And, and now I'm not like putting a thousand extra calories of garbage in my system on a daily basis. So I'm lighter, but yet still, but yet still running uphill wasn't any easier. So it just goes to show.
0: Some people, their speed just translates.
1: Yeah. People who are 140 pounds or less, that's who tra- <laughs> That's who's speed translates. I'm just going to say it
0: unfortunately yeah yeah every time that a pro runner has shown up to a mountain race that i've run a pro track or road runner they can run uphill you know they may not be able to do it later in the race but for the first several climbs they can do it as well as anyone and then eventually yep. they fade because they just don't have the specificity of training whereas i have to put in blocks of hill work to be able to translate my hill my running to hills and yeah, there there is certainly a weight component to uphill running, and that's there's no way around that, and so it's approaching that in mm-hmm. a <laughs> healthy way.
1: I typically don't see the big, beefy, but yet athletic endurance athlete who's pretty accomplished, you typically don't see them go and run uphill effortlessly without a really specific training block.
0: The only time I've seen the exception to that outside of OCR is Mount Marathon in Alaska when the Nordic skiers came out and oh. just rolled that race. They were just, they looked like a train. They just went up, down, up, down, up, down, like just chugging. Do, 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 do. Their pistons never stopped firing and they weren't graceful and they didn't have long strides. They were clearly churning uphill, not bounding uphill, but it never slowed and they were so impressive to watch. You know,
1: though, cross-country skiing um, does such a good job of raising that like aerobic and anaerobic rate. It does a better job, I think, of Im- you know, getting that heart rate jacked up probably to the zones in which uphill running would provide a just a pure runner. So there's probably some more translation there. We could probably make sense of it. Plus skiing tends to lead to stronger legs, probably not as efficient on flats and da da da. Yeah. So it would make sense to me.
0: Classic skiing uphill is very similar to power hiking. Oh, yeah. So that, I mean, it stands to reason that they'd be very good at that, but I would assume that not only are they good at driving their quad and their toe down into the ground and pulling forward with their hamstring just from their, their classic skiing motion, but that they can drive more power out of their triceps and shoulders than a lot of mountain runners can when they power hike and just pushing off their legs. I bet they get more out of that than a standard mountain runner would just because of how good they are at using their arms to drive power. For sure. I can attest to that with my off season. I'm actually really excited for snow because I can't wait to get back on skis. So I've felt that. Speaking of Tennessee mile last year, I came out of, by the end of it, my triceps were a little twingy, like not crampy, but just failing out twingy and sore and tired from, I mean, if it was a six hour race, I would guess four and a half of it was spent going uphill because the downhill is so much quicker and of the four and a half going uphill, probably, two and a half to three of those hours were power hiking. So just three hours of mini uh, light 20% of body weight, one arm push ups over, over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And eventually my triceps were smoked. You know, you're doing a lot of power hiking. If your triceps are
1: sore the next day, you know, you've been through <laughs> something. Yeah, for sure. yeah. Three hours of power hiking is enough. I was there one time first year in big bear uh, that happened to me. Um, okay. So we, we have an, another, I guess I say another Q&A because I guess you know, it feels like that wasn't many episodes ago for me personally, but I feel like Brack and me and you are like courting each other again, right? Like we're just like, you know, we hadn't gone out on a date for like two weeks. And so like now we're just like courting each other in the way we're like, we just wanted to get a little more Brack and I time one more time before we start reintroducing guests and getting our own mojo back. So Q&A it is. And they've been stacking up. I didn't realize we haven't done a and a in way longer than I had thought. So we're due. I got so many questions, yeah.
0: yeah, they're stacking up, and Lisa posted a question this morning about the q and a, so we got more questions off that, so I actually am in a unique role where I have a lot of the screenshots this time. She did uh me and your wife text quite frequently in
1: case you're wondering, she did text me some screenshots, so
0: I always know it's you when uh she gets a phone and she quick Turns and sh- shelters the phone and looks at it and uh-huh. gets this little like grin on her face and her eyes light up and she's mm-hmm. giggling at whatever you've written and I say who is it she goes
1: oh no it's just just my mom maybe I'm in there as mom better watch better pay close attention
0: the oldest trick in the book better not be daddy
1: <laughs> better not be daddy <laughs>
0: <laughs> touche <laughs> it looks like you want to open this oh boy uh, well I mean I've got him up here let, let, let me let me take the moderator role here. Oh, we're starting with a good one. Faye Morgan. Aging and racing pro. At what point does that transition from pro racing to age group make sense? I'm sure it differs for everyone, but are there markers to look for? Does performance and injury dictate? Well, it certainly could. (laughs) You can go ahead. No, no, it's yours. Just that last one. Does performance and injury dictate? Unfortunately, sometimes yes. Yes.
1: Yeah, that's an impossible question to answer. First of all, it really is. So I understand why you would ask it because I don't know how old you are, Faye, um, but um, I'm 38. I believe you're in that realm or a few years older. But um, <sighs> this is the thing: is typically, as we've talked about before on this podcast, it does seem to be injury causes a setback or two, which thus causes a loss of focus at times, which thus causes a reduction in fitness. And eventually some sort of battle or hurdle from your years of overuse type training catches up with you. And that is mostly the sign that ends up pushing people like to tear down, so to speak. Um, But it's not because of lack of ability or lack of will. It's mostly because of lack of unfortunate circumstances, which causes your fitness to decelerate, unfortunately. I think as if you're a 50 year old athlete who's healthy and have been able to train, you may say, hey, I'm getting as much out of my body as I know I still possibly can. then a lead is still right for you. But if you feel like you're a compromised version of yourself due to injury or setbacks that have just amounted to too much, then that might be your sign. That's the only thing I can really come up with. Because if your performance is still hanging, and Faye, I believe yours have top 10 in U.S. National Series races,
0: nothing's changing for you, I would imagine. So what do you think? Well, it's the opposite question that we normally get, which is when am I ready to move from age group to pro racing? And in other sports, it's easy when you earn your pro card. As in ours, you get your pro qualification code, but at the same time, there's still a disconnect where there are plenty of people who can earn the pro card who are not ready to compete at the pro level. And so yeah. it's it's the reverse problem. But I would, I would say that I, I feel for this because if you're asking this problem, asking this question, you feel like you have this problem. And I say problem in air quotes because it's a problem for you, but we don't see it as a problem. Yeah. It means you probably aren't performing as you once were. And I'm not saying that that's you, Faye, but the typical athlete that says, when is it time to transition, means that they know they're moving backwards in the field. Used to always be top three. Now I'm top five, maybe top seven. So the point is, you still belong performance wise, but in your own mind, when do I no longer belong? Mm-hmm. And that's the tough. One to answer. So, I think the only way to answer that is to know what is my purpose for racing. Is my purpose to compete against the very best people in the world? In which case, you race pro until you no longer belong there, until you no longer meet the criteria of qualification for that race. However, is your is your purpose for racing to be in the mix and competitive? Then it comes down to which race can I do that in. Mm -hmm. And so for me example right now, if I had just gone out to the OCR world championships, I would have had to race age group. I would have raced pro three K in age group 15 K because I could be somewhat competitive in the 3 K right now. I wouldn't have made a podium, but I could have been in the mix for a while in that 15 K. I would have been so far out of it after the first climb and a half that I wasn't Mm -hmm. even, I wouldn't have had any fun where I would have had fun racing age group because I could have mixed it up and run for the top spot. And for me, I am a competition-based racer. I need to be in the mix. I need to take the start line knowing I have a chance here. If that, if I can't say I have a chance, then it's not fun for me, in which case, why would I even show up to that race? So answering why you're there will determine when you should no longer be in your typical starting corral. I agree
1: with that. I also think it comes down to like one- do I feel fulfilled when I cross that finish line and excited to be there? And then two, how do I feel after I cross that finish line? Do I feel defeated more often than not now? Am I finishing feeling bad about myself in comparison or am I finishing with still something to fight for where I'm like, fuck, I want to go out and beat that 25 year old B-I-T-C-H. You say it, Faye. It's okay. Like if you're still, if you're still firing on all cylinders after you cross the finish line, still hungry no questions asked. That's the right decision. But if you're leaving feeling defeated and deflated, um, I think it comes down to how you feel and more importantly, how you feel when it's all said and done. I like that. Um, So that's, that's another thing to think about.
0: I I took eighth place in a race one time that I finished knowing, man, I got everything out of that race. I'm so proud to take eighth place. Yeah, And I took fourth place in a race once where I was sick to my stomach crossing the finish line. Like I cannot believe I took fourth place in a race, but it was two totally different situations. And when more often than not, you lean one way or the other, that's that's when you know. Yep. I agree. So yeah, that that finish line feeling, that's a—that's one I wouldn't have thought of, Kirk. I like that. So I hope this isn't a dumb question. You know, if you have to preface that. Probably a dumb question. <laughs> I'm just, just kidding. kidding. When is an interval workout? Blah, blah, blah. Let me start over. When an interval workout calls for race pace, is there a downside to running it faster than race pace? For example, one of my favorite workouts is cruise intervals 6 to 8 by 1000, which I have written in my notes that Bracken said at one point to run at 10k pace or 5 seconds faster. Well, my race pace for 10k is about 740, but I can run the 1000 meter cruise intervals at 658 pace. Is that okay or is it better to run closer to my actual race pace? It's not a dumb question at all, first of all. It's a great question. This is a question that I would say every runner who's ever taken the time to think about their training and workouts has wondered. And they either found the answer or they're still wondering it.
1: Well, first of all, we do promote swinging the hammer hard on occasion. Is there a place for it every single time you hit your thousand meter cruise intervals? No. But if it's talking about swinging the hammer hard and increasing stimulus to uh, get a reaction out of your body physiologically and get on board with that. So first of all, like you're qualified as yes already. The answer is yes. It's okay to do that. Second, has your fitness improved? Are we now going off of markers that don't even matter anymore because you've, excuse me, you've gotten better. If you know that answer and you know, your 10 K pace is actually 7:40, then that's one thing, but maybe you're just a little more fit than you currently are. Um, And then the other question would be with the cruise intervals, I don't know what your recovery necessarily looks like in between the thousands. Um, So with that in mind, Bracken's talking, Christ, 30 to 60 seconds, sometimes recovery between thousands. Maybe you're taking two or three minutes. Well, then, of course, you should be charging up for a little faster effort. So there's some nuances there you have to think about.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Where you finish is where I would start is what are your recoveries? Because that dictates the premise of the workout. If we're talking true cruise intervals, that's really just taking a tempo run, cutting it into little pieces, and then doing it slightly faster since you're getting a rest. So recoveries must be 60 seconds or less. And I'd prefer to do them 45 seconds or less. In which case, then you know, like you can't fake that workout. cannot. And the purpose of it is to run in your threshold range. And so it's not beneficial to try, like, could I run cruise intervals faster? Always. Yes. But does it benefit me? No, not really. Definitely not long-term. So six to eight by thousand is kind of a tweener workout. If you think about it, because a real cruise interval, if you thought about a tempo run would be more like eight to 12 by thousand where six to eight is really more of a 5k, 10k workout. And that 5K, 10K dividing line is tricky for people when you're running around that seven minute pace, because that is basically a threshold run. That's 42 minutes of work. That is at the low end of, or the fast end of what a threshold effort would be. So again, like you're kind of, it's a kind of a tweener workout. So running it faster than 10K pace would be a race pace workout. So I guess my question is, A, what's your recovery? And B, what is your true capacity? Like Kirk said, because maybe it's time to re-up. If it's race pace, it's always okay to run faster. If it's trying to be a threshold workout, you'd rather hit the intended heart rate associated with it than you would, or the blood lactate level, rather than saying, how fast can I run this workout?
1: Well, and C, to add to that is what event are you training for? Mm -hmm. So it's okay to run six cruise intervals at 5k pace, potentially, if any, if you can do that, because that's not easy if you're truly training for something shorter and sharper but in our sport everything seems to be 40 minutes or longer which then would shift you to more of a 10k pace effort so i guess i would also wonder what this person is focused on
0: yeah if we just look at the numbers my current race pace for 10k is about 740 but i can run 6 to 8 by 1000 at 658 pace so we're talking 40 second difference between huge 10k race pace and what they're doing this workout at, which would tell me, A, you're probably faster at a 10K than you think you are right now. But B, you're probably talking about two different workouts. I would run like a five or six by thousand at faster, 630, 640 pace. And then I'd stick to that 720, 730 range and see how many reps I could do on 60 seconds recovery. You know, if you can do it comfortably, do 10 do 12 reps. That's a big workout and see how that affects your body. So I would still, to use a cliche term, I would polarize that a little bit more. i might, i might choose instead of that tweener workout, either, or I like that. I agree. Anything else you want to add to that? Nope. Other than that, it's not a dumb question. That's a every runner's question. Great question. Can you please touch on heat training, training for a hot race when you live in a cold area for context, a desert race in Arizona. And I live in Northern Alberta. I feel like we get one of these every Q and A, something along those lines. And we think
1: we have it bad here in, in Nor- I'm in Central yeah. Minnesota you're in Wisconsin. Northern Alberta has a
0: different situation up there. I think there's two components to this. There, there is what you do at home, and then there's what you do at the race. Okay. Do you want to run with those, or do you want to, or do you have a counter to that?
1: I don't have a counter to that, but I mean, I just go back to. Um, I'm going to sound stupid, but 2001's performances at the Foot Locker High School National Championships, where Chris Zielinski as a sophomore took third place and almost out kicked for the win. And he lived in Wisconsin. And if anybody knows, Foot Locker National Cross Country High School Championships take place in December, typically in Florida. I believe December, late November, early December. Anyways, he crossed the finish line and they said, Chris, how'd you, how'd you do it? Like, Coming down here, it was a hot morning. It was upper 70s when the start went off, and he's been in 30-degree temperatures. He simply said, well, I wore three layers of clothes on every single run I've done for the last month, and I got used to running hot. Mm. And so this actually felt like a treat. And as simple as that is, that's always stuck with me. And that's been my stupid and simple approach, if I do have anything like that coming up, or choosing to run indoors on a treadmill in a heated environment. While wearing, let's say tights and a long sleeve shirt, I am going to overheat that will provide the correct stimulus. So I've taken a play out of a high schooler at the times playbook, because I can buy into that. So that's where my mind goes initially.
0: That's exactly right. The things you do at home, run in a hot room, put a space heater next to your treadmill, run with extra layers. Chris Linsky did it in high school. The Athens marathoners did it prepping for the Olympics where the U S had a great performance, probably their best marathon performance in 10, 20 years. And people did it leading into, into Beijing or Sapporo. So it's um, sorry, Tokyo or Sapporo and Beijing will, will be the uh, winter Olympics coming up, I believe. But it, it's just, it's tried and true that if you train hot, you can transfer over. And then uh, sauna, Sauna use, especially post run, has shown to be very effective for handling not only altitude, but heat racing. And then it's what you do on a race day. You know, if it's a long race, you freeze your water bottles and you keep them on your body and you let them keep your temperature down and your core temperature melt the bottle and, and you're good. And if it's long or short, you uh you take your race gear and you keep it wet and cold. Up until the moment you need to put it on, you do little things like that, ice in your hat, little things. But yeah, I would start exactly like you said, Kirk, and keep clothes layers on and keep your temperature warm whenever you do uh, any any time you do workouts indoors.
1: Yeah, and I know on those frigid days, like in the winter. Um, sometimes like no matter how many layers you wear, sure, you're going to get hot and uncomfortable, but you're never truly going to get that. Like if the if it's zero degrees out, like the sting against your face and like how your arms are going to feel no matter how much you layer, that's where it's like, Hey man, it's okay to get on the treadmill if we're looking to provide that stimulus. And Absolutely. you can even start with your recovery runs. Okay. I want to get on real terrain for my quality days, but I'll just run my recovery runs hot and that's okay. And my metrics don't matter. And then transition to quality work eventually. but Um, I just think like indoor treadmill is a really good use for the overheat training. If you really are in a cold environment and getting outside can't get you warm enough sometimes.
0: I was reading some coaches advice the other day, basically a written Q and a, and it was a coach that I respect, but they said the opposite of what we're saying, which is do all that, but do not do it on quality days. Keep it to easy days. And I understand it, but I politely disagree. Because you're not doing an easy day on race day. And I understand that there's some increased health risks in training. But there are increased health risks on race day. And I would rather have you prepared for exactly what you're going to feel. Because we do those workouts in summer. 98 degrees and humid. We still do our quality work. I don't think there's any more risk putting your space heater on and wearing long tights and a long sleeve shirt in your basement in winter than there is running Louisiana in July. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's a risk either way, but it's one you can mitigate by being intentional about your hydration and your ability to stop the workout if it's, you start to see the signs. So I would actually say if you could only do one, only do your quality days like that, because that is a one-to-one correlation to race day. I'm open. I am open to conversation on that, but that's where I currently stand.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. And I am open to conversation as well. Another thing I like about the treadmill when it comes to heat adaptation is even if your house is set to 72 or 75, um, the thing you're not remembering is let's say you go in a short shorts and no shirt for heat acclimation training in your house and you turn the temp up just a little bit, but it's nothing crazy. You have no wind blowing against you, cooling you down. And when you go run in 80 degrees, but you have the 10 mile an hour wind blowing against your face. Cause that's the speed you're running. It feels cooler than 75 degrees because you're getting cooled off by the wind on the treadmill. You just sit in your own musty sloppy hot mess. And then you get out and run on real terrain, real hot, with real wind. And it cools you off too, which you don't think about. So just like sitting on the treadmill, even without overdressing in a normal room temperature can cause anybody to overheat. So that's why I like it too, because you
0: don't get that airflow. That's a good point. Very good point. Saxby Dan. Dan Saxby says, I really stink at keeping easy days easy. It just feels counterproductive. Please remind me why I need to trust the process. Because I have bracken in my ear going on about looking good for a hot girl or something like that when I'm running. Mm -hmm. And plodding along at a snail's pace isn't attractive. Thanks. (laughs) I like that, Dan. Just don't
1: make sure you, you avoid areas in which hot chicks hang out on those easy days. Step one.
0: First of all, no one finds you attractive while you're running, (laughs) if you're a man. (laughs) Pretty true. Girls can look cute doing anything. We generally look like sweaty slobs when we're working out. So just get that out of your head. But I understand what you're saying, and it feels counterproductive, and we just have to remind ourselves that we cannot be trusted. We can't be trusted. The only thing that makes you better is recovering from your big effort regenerating and reaping the physiological adaptations that happen inside your body. And so when you're out there feeling unproductive inside your body, everyone's scrambling to try to reap the rewards of what you did the day before. And if you don't let them do that, they're never going to catch up on their work and you're not going to get those benefits. So I understand what you're saying, but as long as you're looking for a pep talk that says, don't be dumb, don't be dumb. Don't do the first half of the equation and write off the second half. Otherwise, the first half is useless. It must be balanced out.
1: You know what I think, Dan? First of all, Dan and I have been staying in touch a little bit via text. He's been very supportive of my my journey, we'll call it. So I, I feel like I can say this to Dan. Um, Dan, you're probably not swinging the hammer nearly hard enough on your quality days. Because if you are, you are begging for something slow and plotty and unproductive feeling on your recovery days. If I hit my quality day true, in its essence, what it's intended to do, which usually means obliterate me half the time, I even my recovery pace, getting to my recovery heart rate, feels cumbersome. I even want to go slower than that at times because my legs are trashed. And so I challenge you, Dan, to take a hard look at your quality days and are you really putting in the work there, which leaves you only able to run pathetically and unattractively slow on your recovery days. That's what I say to Dan. Perfect. Yeah.
0: Fred Clary would say, is that how the body works? We got to bring him up every
1: single episode. I think that's going to be like a think thing so. we got to do. How does your body work?
0: Stress, recover, adaptation. If you take out the recover, adaptation is taken out with it. They're joined at the hip and you shortcut that process. And you just don't reap the benefits. So it's it's just not the way the body works, Dan. And you know it. And that's why you're asking. Because you know it. exactly. Work yep. a little harder so that you can work a little easier.
1: He's just asking us to pour a little sip of our Kool-Aid down his throat. And he knows what he's getting. He needed a
0: reminder. I'm glad you asked. It's all right. I, I appreciate it. We're accountability mm-hmm. partners. Matt Kemp. This is actually an athlete I coach, Kirk. Okay. Do you feel betrayed when your athletes ask Q and A's or do you feel? I have a few of them sitting in my uh, screenshots. I like it, but I like it. It's always funny when I see them. But Here we are.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Suggestions for modifying training. If you know, you can't get enough consistent sleep. Or is it just a bottomless pit if building dead on the body? So I'm going to give you a little context. He's working for a startup right now and they're doing the poisonous startup hours. Which is, I promise this is just at the beginning until we can get enough cash flow that we can hire on good help and reduce our hours. And you never get to that point unless you have a very, very unique leader on board. Mm-hmm. However, startups generally are gravitated to and started by those who trend towards ADD, ADHD, and oftentimes spectrum ish behavior, which means. There is no such thing as too much for that personality type. And so they oftentimes do not understand when the people underneath them want time for things like family and self-care and things like that, because it just doesn't resonate. No. That's my little aside society commentary on startups. He's in that process where he's just working entirely too much and he has to do the work, has to put in the hours in order for the startup to be successful. So sleep right now is the compromise. What do you do with your training if you can't sleep enough? It's a great
1: question. I think I mean, don't we all fall into that camp at some time with life stressors and such? Mm-hmm. Here's the deal, Matt. I think um, I think the body needs two big stimulus per week, no matter what your life circumstance. no matter if you get two hours of sleep or eight hours of sleep. Regardless as to your sleep, I don't think that your quality work can be compromised if you care about your performance amidst all of this. So that means no matter how bad your week is, Matt, you need to suck it up twice a week, which means you need to get some sort of quality high-end work. And even if it's a long run or more time on feet for that second effort, that, there's no negotiating with me there, no matter how shitty your life is right now. Where I can negotiate with you is on the duration of your recovery runs, the frequency of your recovery runs, and all the fillers in between. Meaning if it's really one of those days, take the day off. Or just getting out for a walk after work to decompress, I can I can flex on those days. But where I can't flex is not getting the correct stimulus in, um, regardless
0: of your circumstances. So that's like what I would start with, no matter what. I would agree. I would say that outside of the few rare exceptions, almost everyone I've talked to who has a chaotic work schedule, when they're pressed. They can admit that, yeah, you know what? This is a lighter day for me. Or this is the day I usually just recharge and regenerate. And once you can identify those two days, that's what you do. You script your workouts around those two days. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. You you, you don't compromise on two. And they might have to be back to back. Yeah. And that's okay. The other thing is that I've been part of a startup. And I've known many people who have been part of startups, and a lot of the work is your task list to get done. But another large percentage is kind of a uh, a holding pattern where you're on call, and you have a couple a couple tasks sent out to people, or you're waiting on responses back from others before you can start your complete your next task. So you're always waiting on other people, and you're kind of at their mercy where. You might have a 16-hour day, but a lot of that is a holding pattern where it's a 16-hour day because I need to get this done, but I have to hear back from confirmation on something.
1: It's a lot of hurry up and wait in that phase sometimes.
0: It is. There are hyper, hyper busy chunks where you might not breathe for eight hours, but there's another eight hours where every 20 minutes you get a call back and then you scramble do 20 minutes of work and then you're waiting again. That's the perfect time for grease the groove type training. Yep. You're lunging, you're squatting, you're doing slow twitch muscle strength training, you're doing maybe just walking time on feet around your workspace or wherever it is while you're waiting for things. You can be on call in multiple ways. And so that's another place to start stealing time away for things. And that includes power naps. Power naps can be fit in, in the startup lifestyle because you typically don't have the standard. I clock in, my boss peeks out from his office periodically on me. You're more, you have leniency in how you run your day, as long as you get your stuff done. And so 20 minute naps, you could take one or two a day in most startup situations.
1: Hmm. Didn't think about that, but that's true. Sometimes that feels like a whole nother night's sleep. 20 damn minutes.
0: I took one the other day, last week. I took 20 minutes. I was dragging Kirk. And I think at nine am I took a power nap. We were meeting at nine forty five or something, and I slept from like nine twenty to nine forty. My alarm was set. I woke up and we came in here and I think we recorded an episode. And it bought me till like two pm. And I crashed again at two, but it bought me another half day. So there 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 are ways to do this. you're you you are not living a normal life when you're part of a startup, and I think you can get creative with how you address things. I agree. All right. I did a 10-month build to OCR World Championships, built fitness slow the first half, turned it up and hovered at sub-maximal the second half, then went maximal three weeks prior. Since World Championships, I have been destroyed. I rested all last week with really low efforts and slept really well, but I noticed that my glutes, high hammies, abductors, and hip flexors just won't heal. I am 10 days out and can't run for too long and have no speed. Have you guys ever had this after a build? I know I'm old, but usually after five days I'm back to par. I'm just not recovering. Hmm. I'm gonna let you answer this, and then I'm gonna tell you who it is. Would I have an idea who this is? You probably could. He's a well-known person in our sport, age
1: grouper slash pro. Okay, I think. Well, then I think you're you're outlining that pretty well. I would assume. Um, that's a tough one. You know, we accumulate fatigue. Like it can mount. Like we used to call like making bank, bank deposits with our training that we can withdraw later. Um, I also feel like season fatigue, adrenal stress, um, all of that stuff, cortisol release, can all after the big climax of something you've worked really hard towards, your body goes into like the state of like recovery shock, and sometimes hormonally and other things, it all just hits you like a ton of bricks. And then you're in this like funk recovery, can't get out of phase for a while. And your adrenal system and your hormonal system kept you in line and you got to the big day and the big dance and hopefully it went well for you. And then it's like your balloon got popped and now you're sitting there in limbo. Do I think that's a long time? Yeah. But am I surprised to hear that? Not really. I think it's a time where you need to just listen to your body. And if that means two or three weeks off of running, that is okay. It's not going to set you back. It's probably the demands of your life leading up to this all amounted to like an eruption of like recovery and here you sit and it's okay. And so that's where my mind goes right away is it's just accumulation of fatigue, both physically and emotionally and hormonally over the season. And now your that stuff doesn't come back right away. And that's why you feel so shitty. Also check your vitamin D and magnesium levels. You never know. Sometimes those little things go a long ways with muscle soreness and recovery.
0: I like that. Speaking just globally on this, without specifics to this athlete, how many times do you make it through a super stressful patch at work, and the moment the big project's done, you get sick? Always. You see it all the
1: time in even the Olympics, or high-end sports, where even at the Olympics themselves, they finally taper and decompress, and they show up at the start line with a cold, or they end up miserably sick for months afterwards. So yes.
0: How many times do college students get sick the moment finals are done? Half of them. Every year, half of them. Now, there's some other <laughs> correlated <laughs> issues there as well. But sure. the point is, our bodies are really good at surviving. But the moment you no longer have to survive, that check comes. The bill comes due and it's got to be paid. This could be one of those situations where you've gotten by because of your routine and because of your focus and your body knows what's demanded of it. And the moment you take a second to breathe, it goes, oh my goodness, is this our chance? And it goes into just hyper repair mode and it's working on everything all at once. I and mean, it just needs to shut you down for a little bit. That could be what you're talking about right now.
1: Yeah. Who is I'm it? I'm going to
0: tell you who it is.
1: Cole DeRosa, Kevin Gelati.
0: Dustin Living Good. Dustin Living Good. Ah. Which I will say two things. First of all, this is the first year that Dustin went uncoached. He worked with... Me a while back, and then he worked with someone else for a while, and then he's kind of self-coached right now. He listens to this podcast and other podcasts, and he does what you would hope any really cerebral athlete would be able to do, which is he pulls from multiple sources, finds what's true for him in his situation, and built a co- he built a comprehensive training plan off of it, and he executed so well. He's been absolutely on fire this year. Mm -hmm. But then that, that that even leads to being less
1: surprised about the current situation,
0: right? This is his first year where he's put so much in place and followed such a crazy good script all the way through. Like at some point, again, the bill comes due. The other thing with Dustin is that he put a big emphasis on weight reduction leading into this season. He's extremely lean and he had like a self, he had this self kind of test and experiment and contest with himself going to see, can I reduce my weight while maintaining or increasing my power output? And it worked fantastically. And you could see the results in his lab data shows that he's capable of doing that. However, the leaner you get, the finer that point gets, the easier you tip into sickness and injury. And there's a chance that if you kept a very high, you said maximal output for three weeks and then had three straight intense days of racing at OCR World Championships. You had all that adrenal fatigue and all the physical fatigue and nervous system, but you also probably lost like that last bit of body fat that you just can't sustain all those pieces at once. And you may just need to put on a little bit of weight. Yeah. That's, that's one more piece. You might just have to eat a little bit extra along with your sleep and along with your magnesium and vitamin D and whatnot. You might just be below the point of sustainability body fat percentage wise.
1: Yeah. The more you sharpen the tip of your sword, the easier it is to bend it Yeah, in a sense. And you're probably just at that point, man. Um, I will say as a, by the way, I approve of you growing your hair out, Dustin living good. Looking good, brother. And he did send me a really nice message after last episode. Thank you for that. Dustin, rooting for you. It's time to reset, man. You put your body through hell this season, if I'm being honest. You performed at a capacity well beyond anything you've done recently. It's time to chill, man. And
0: you've earned it. And I don't know what his plans are. He might be planning to hit Abu Dhabi in December. Yeah, I don't either. Even more important to rest now, your body of work over the last 10, 11 months Will sustain you. You can take two or three weeks down, and within two more weeks, get right back to where you were. percent. I firmly believe that. Remember, Kirk. Kirk talked about twenty days. Science shows that it's actually a full twenty days before you truly erode fitness. We're not talking your sharpness. We're not talking your 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 uh, efficiency, but true fitness you can hold on to for up to twenty days. So, Dustin, you're only halfway through that. Yeah. And then when you return to running, even if you do lose it, like let's say
1: you do have a December race coming up, you still got a month and a half to get it back. And it comes back way quicker than you think. And all is not lost. Three weeks is nothing in the grand scheme of things. I agree.
0: All right. Next question. You said in one of your last episodes that you hate when people wear the same running shoe for all their runs. (laughs) I wear Brooks Cascadia's for my trail runs and races and New Balance 880s for my road runs races. If I'm running on a budget, is this all I need? Or should I have specific shoes for easy runs, quality days, and races? Thanks again. Wishing Kirk all the best. This is why I over-explain points oftentimes when I talk. And I know I'm redundant many times, but I don't want someone to catch one sentence and apply it to my entire being. Okay. It drives me crazy sometimes when people only wear one, one pair of shoes, but I do not hate it. And it works for many, many people. And running is great because it's so accessible and cheap. You can buy one pair of shoes and probably get 90% of the way there for maximum race performance on any terrain in any situation. Mm -hmm. So no, you do not ever need to buy more shoes. And that's coming from someone who sits in front of a shoe wall every single day. (laughs) Okay. Well,
1: um, you know, when you talk about someone who's on a budget, like first of all, that, that the answer stops right there. Like you got to work within your means. So I understand that. And then the second thing you just need to ask yourself is really what, what what comes, what it comes down to more than anything is are you staying injury free? Uh, Many studies have shown that shoe rotation, there's a percentage that I could look up that is associated with this, but those who rotate their shoes, let's say wear three different pairs throughout the week have a 63% less chance of getting a chronic overuse injury than those who wear the same shoe every single day for all of their runs. That's actually fact. That's been like peer reviewed studied, I believe. Um, But if you're not struggling with injury issues, that's the first question. If you are, then maybe pinch your pennies a little more and find another way to get to a different shoe as well in the rotation that is going to um, help your foot plant hit the ground a little differently than the other pairs, which will also maybe potentially uh, prevent injury. Uh, If you don't struggle with injury, I don't see anything wrong with what you're doing. Sure. A light, fast racer is going to be much, it's going to be flashy. You're going to feel good. Maybe you'll squeak out a few more seconds. Um, But really it it comes back to the centerpiece and that is injury. If you're healthy and what you're doing, it's not broke. Don't fix it. Um, However, if you are struggling with something like that, then I would take a hard, hard look at what you're putting on your feet and add a few into the rotation. That's what I would start with, with my answer.
0: Exactly. I don't have much to add to that other than that. There are examples of world-class runners who do everything in one shoe. Uh, Hobie Call, from the time I met him till the time he retired, did 100% of his work in rubber-bottom cross-country racing shoes. Wild. 100% of it. He was a low-mileage, high-volume athlete, but I would say his stride was even improved by doing all of his work in that because his form never broke down when he did have to race in them. John Albin probably spent four years running in nothing but Innovate X talons and VJ Sport Irox. No injuries throughout that entire time. Eventually he got injured, but we can't point a finger at what that actually was. So there are examples to everything. As much as I love shoes, you can get by with one shoe. My wife has one shoe. Mm-hmm. She, she does all of her runs in the Nike Pegasus. That's it. Nothing wrong with that. Mm-mm. Other than rolling her ankles,
1: she's been pretty injury-free. So, Yeah.
0: That being said, when you're ready to find a new shoe, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> is there a point in training and racing when the power hike is more effective or efficient than running up a steep incline? What do you base that decision on to switch back to a hike? I've been spending lots of time on the incline treadmill doing speed and heavy carries and find that many times I can power hike at the same rate as my run at 15% or higher and keep my heart rate lower. You answered your own question. You did.
1: (laughs) It's very, it's very individual Mm -hmm. on that one. I think having an incline trainer, it sounds like you do 15% or above they hinted at, Um, super good to experiment with. If you have the luxury of the incline trainer and you can attach that with a heart rate monitor, so you know what a given effort and pace at a run versus a power hike does to you systemically. That is like as good of an experiment as you can get because your heart rate's not going to lie. Now, of course, like for example, sometimes my legs actually burn up quicker when I initially switch to a power hike, which can be counterproductive depending on the grade. But like that data right there, you should be able to do your own experiment is what I'm kind of getting at. And so I'm glad you do that. You should just pay attention. Obviously you're learning already. You're understanding that power hiking at certain points is less costly from an efficiency standpoint. So
0: keep doing that. I don't have anything more, more to add to that. Do you? The answer is, is there a time to switch over? Yes. When is the time when conditions dictate that and it's all trial and error. For example, uh, let's say Killington. This is a mountain in the, on the East coast that is very steep. And I have run a couple different races there. And one of the races was over in two hours and 59 minutes. And the other one was like 3.59, an hour different. I ran more of the climbs the three-hour year than the four-hour year because I had to save it for later. Even though I was faster in the moment, it was going to cost me later in the race. So part of it's dictated by how long is the race? Even a 40% incline, I'm going to run it if it's a two-mile race. If it's an eight mile race, I'm going to start power hiking the 20% inclines earlier in the race because I need to save some juice. And then the other half is exactly what you both have talked about. You just have to find out what you're more efficient at. I can't tell you how many times early in my career before Ryan just absolutely was no longer near me in mountain races where I was running up a climb that Ryan Atkins was power hiking and my breathing was going wild and his wasn't. Switching to power hiking, I dropped behind and my legs started burning because I wasn't used to it. So yep. even though it was costing me more oxygen, muscularly, I was more efficient at running. It's all about practice. It's all about testing.
1: It is. Lin- uh, Lindsay Webster and Ryan Atkins, if you want to like understand how to manage that effort, they're both probably the best in the sport at choosing when to do what. Go watch any race, West Virginia, North American Champs for Ryan, um, OCR Worlds for Lindsay. Like they power hike early, they power hike often when they could very well run up that grade, but it's about managing your effort, knowing your body and just watch them do it. You'll see them right next to people who are choosing to run and they're calm, cool and collect going in because they know that they're, they're within themselves. And that's more important than winning that 50 yard segment by continuing to run.
0: I, I watched Ryan do something that I feel like elevated him in my mind to the status of he's, he's doing freaky things on course. I, I've seen Hobie do freaky things on course. I've seen Susanna do freaky things on course. I've seen John Albin do freaky things on course. Ryan's freaky things are usually strength-based. But in Tahoe, in that race, he got to a point in the course that anyone's raced there knows. It's after the uh, the bucket carry and the spear throw. There are some stairs, wide, low stairs, long stairs. That You're talking up- about North American champs, the way he went up yes. those? He went up it like a jackalope. Yeah, everyone who gets there, their legs are fried and burning and your lungs are because it's at the top of a high altitude mountain and you throw your spear or one year I think there was some sort of a different obstacle down there and you have to run up these stairs and people either take short choppy steps or they power hike up because there's no decision and he turned and he bounded up them because they're long, wide, low slung stairs. They're weird for your stride and he just did like a bounding stride right up those things. And I thought that's freaky. I've never, ever even contemplated being capable of doing something like that, but he was so in control of his effort and he's so good now at what he does that he could just do that in the middle of a high altitude, high stakes race. It blew my mind. I watched it like six times in a row. He did the hill bounding that you talk
1: about as far as like strength, but he did it within a race, which you never see anybody do. And you should go back because what it is, is he's actually in the background as they're watching somebody else throw the spear. Yes, And you, so he's not even the focal point, really, I feel like at the time. And here he's doing this weird stride. And I couldn't figure it out at first. I was like, why is he running like a weirdo? And then I realized what was there. And I was like, aha, that makes sense.
0: Oh, it blew my mind. And they actually use that in the preview. Hmm. I don't know if you ever saw that, but it was a more zoomed in on him it must have been a different camera shot following him and i thought that looks really cool and weird but i don't know why they would include that because clearly that was part of his warm up drills cuz he wouldn't do that in a race and then it turns Never. out he did it in the race blew my freaking mind kirk i was on the oh, treadmill oh. rewind 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 i just kept watching it cuz again like you're right it's he's in the back of the frame the focus is not on him it looked like an optical illusion it sure did i thought that's just stupid that he has the ability to do that. He is on a different level. Mm -hmm. Here's a different question. I don't think we've ever received anything like this. Do you see value in replacing the insoles of running shoes? And he's not talking for a structural standpoint. I run in Brooks Adrenaline, but I'm a little heavier at 6'4", 210 and around 10 to 12% body fat. Or do I just need to replace my shoes more often? So he's talking, do I compress and break down my my insoles, inserts on my shoes at a faster rate than my regular shoes? Should I switch those out? It can't hurt as
1: long as it's the right
0: insole. And I would say the opposite. It can hurt.
1: Hmm. Even if you bought like a bunch of Brooks Adrenaline insoles only, like some black market shit on eBay, and you had the exact insert of the exact size, and just put them in old shoes to extend their life a little bit or you switch them out every four weeks or something.
0: And I think that's the part I'm focusing on, old shoes. I think it would cover up for the compression of the foam and the breakdown of the support in the shoe itself. You might still Mm -hmm. feel some cushion when you step into it, but you're not getting the same plant and running experience anymore. I would rather blow through shoes quicker and know exactly when they're done rather than run the risk of an imbalance. I can't argue with you there. Even I understand the you, reason. You you I'm win.
1: Sorry. I mean, you win. I oh, I will I say you win. You just won. Like I can't. Re- I can't. Re- no, you did. You won. I lose. <laughs> um, I I will say that um, one of the biggest mistakes people tend to do when it comes to judging their running shoes is just looking at the bottom, looking at the rubber sole, and being like, ah, they're good. of what's really happening is happening on the inside of your shoe. When you put your hand in there and you feel the grooves, you feel how your forefoot's bottomed out against the rubber in the bottom of the shoe that meets the concrete. Mm -hmm. Like it's the inside of the shoe that takes the true wear and tear. The outside may look bad or look good, but it has very little to do with how well your shoe is holding up. It has everything to do with the inside where your foot meets the shoe, not where your shoe meets the concrete or the trail. So with that theory in mind, it was sort of like, Well, could we on a budget potentially get some more life out of it, but
0: you win, you win, but you're not wrong. Yes, you could. Especially if they had a little bit of support to it, because part of my worry would be the arch compressing and things like that. If you got a supportive insole, yes, but I'd still rather, because my first warning sign of shoes being done is my stride starts to feel different. I start to feel an ache or pain somewhere and I immediately know I'm done. Mm-hmm. Even if it only says 200 miles or 250 on the shoes, some shoes I just don't get that many miles on.
1: Yep.
0: So maybe I'm hypersensitive to that. I've done the opposite. I take insoles that I really like and I put them in other shoes. For example, the Scott Supertrack has the greatest insole on the face of the earth in terms of the way it grips your sock, any sock. could degree agree more. It's like Spider-Man's hands are holding <laughs> your your shoe, your sock in that shoe. I put them in anything, especially if I'm running off terrain or downhill, because I don't want my foot sliding around. I, I put that super track insole in everything, Kirk. I didn't know that, but I agree with you about how that insole fits. Your foot is locked in because of that insole, yeah. I can't find them anywhere. Like as a standalone insole. I don't think you will. I have to just keep buying the shoe to get the insult. <laughs> Seriously, I don't know what they did, but it's freaky. The first time you put it in there, it's almost jarring. Like, Oh my, you start to slide your foot in and it just stops. Yeah, it's hard to get your foot in that shoe. Even the tongue has a, a
1: material in it, oh, like the so inside great. of the tongue. Like it just grabs your foot, you know?
0: We talk about one shoe for everything. If I could only own one shoe to train and race in off uh, on trail or off road, it'd be the Scott Super RC, no matter the terrain, no matter if I could only have one, knowing that I would have to run all terrains on it. I can do every pace and every distance in that shoe. And I just love it. The problem is historically, I haven't had the twos yet, but the ones they compress so fast and they wear down so fast and the lugs rip so fast. I got two races out of one pair of them. I, I just can't, they're an expensive shoe that are almost never on sale, but that.
1: Which is bizarre for a beefy shoe for it to break down so quickly.
0: Yeah. So I, I've heard good things about the second version, but I haven't pulled the trigger yet.
1: Is that the red, the red color? Is that the second version?
0: No, they make the same, they make the same colors, uh, but they okay. have some alternate colors as well. The first one only came in that black and light Yellow. lime yellowish thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would have a, I would have a, an arm wrestling match or a foot
1: wrestling match between the, the Scott super track RC and, and the VJ extreme. It's just so versatile.
0: Uh, I just can't run volume in that
1: little less shoe for, yeah, for training high volume. It's a little tougher if, if you're sensitive to injury, but such a good shoe for like race course wise,
0: probably more versatile, but, uh, training wise, I get what you're saying. I, c- there are some shoes that I can heel strike or four foot strike in them. And the Scott super track is one of those where the VJ, I have to run midfoot or four foot. I can't heel strike in those shoes. You know, I- so I couldn't wear them for a, a flat ultra, but I could probably get by in the Scott's. Maybe I should just have a better stride. All right, Kirk, you ready for this? Yes. What's the optimal eating style for endurance athletes? High fat, low medium, high carb, low moderate protein intake for repairing or increasing muscle. I've been searching a lot on the subject recently, and it seems really hard to find a real answer. (laughs) Damn it. Yes, it is. It's really hard to find a real answer. And I'm going to let Kirk answer the actual science behind this, but I'm going to do a little emotional rant here. I would love to I don't that. care about science. <laughs> the problem is the people who talk the loudest about nutrition have a gimmick that they believe strongly in or a product they're trying to sell you. And so everyone will say this is the best way to do it because they're either emotionally or financially invested in it. It's very difficult to find good, solid, logical advice That is not a system or a gimmick because you can't apply a gimmick or a system to everyone. You can only apply sound principles. Kirk, the floor is yours. That's it. I thought we were going to get another minute or two out of that. I I have to hold myself back. I'd I'd stay here till the cows come home. If I had to rant against the, uh, the financially motivated nutritional industry. Well,
1: people who scream the loudest out of this are typically people who are doing something that isn't considered like, commonplace acceptance and they feel like they need to scream super loud to justify their eating behaviors in order for you to even remotely believe them as they typically need to be so in your face about it and so vindicated in their decision, which can also turn people off. But that is typically why when you have anything off center, those are the type of people that you get. And then that's what also is kind of shoved in your face. So I understand like the potential allure, like it seems to be everywhere, but really it's just four people with huge voices um, proclaiming something that maybe it does work for them. But as a rule of thumb, high carb, high fat, moderate protein done. That's it. And fat, yes, high fat. I agree with high fat, whatever type of diet you're doing. High fat, fat actually kind of leads the way no matter which way you go from center. Fat is still definitely a big part the food pyramid or like your daily general recommended macros for an endurance athlete. The fat should be way jacked up the carbs should be jacked up and the protein can stay about the same, maybe a little higher. I would call it like high fat, high, high carb, moderate protein.
0: Yeah. At the end of the day, you're not truly training your body to be more fat adaptive by lowering your carb intake. You're just lowering the amount of fuel your body can use. Yeah. That's really it. That's not sexy, but it's scientifically supported that you are an outlier if you are a better athlete with less carbs because carbs are the fuel for athletic performance. 100%. I agree. And we can probably leave
1: it at that. I do think we could rant about it a little bit, but.
0: We don't wanna make it our thing. Our thing is sound principles, which is you need carbs to perform, you need fats, and you need some amount of protein, but you don't have to go crazy with it.
1: Yep, exactly. Head nod to one another, we move on.
0: Yes, we do. Recently, I've been training more on my running endurance. For specifically Spartan stadiums this fall, what should the main focus be? Running on fatigued legs or leg strength sessions? Neither. Continue. I think the main focus should be building up your engine, your anaerobic and aerobic systems, and translating it to stairs more than standard running. That is, I would say, as high as 60 to 70% of the race is spent running stairs and making sharp cuts in and out, and you've got to be able to do that. And so you have to do it on fatigued legs, and you've got to do leg leg strength sessions, but the primary focus still has to be aerobic development. You could ask that question about any race, and we would give that answer, right? Yeah. I would only not answer that around one style of race, and that would be the Hyrox Deca style. Yeah. Stadiums, as much as they are different, they are still a foot race unfortunately or fortunately, depending on what your skill set is. But yes, leg power output, absolutely. Fatigued running, absolutely. But stair running is your number one.
1: It's the biggest thing most people miss um, in their prep for a stadium race is they're great at seeking hills because they know they're going to be up and down. Uh, during the race, but they're really bad about seeking true focused efforts on bleachers or stadium stairs. Cause it's hard to find, even if you go to your local track or high school football field. And what do you have? 10, 20 rows at most. And, and they're slippery metal that typically is almost unsafe at times. Yeah. And it's tough to tough to use. So I get, I get it. But in every city, you got that iconic set of stairs somewhere. I can find one around here. You could probably find one there. It's just like getting on that. Like, I know what you do. You go to Um, Concordia University along the lake, and you hit those stairs, and they're absolutely beautiful. They're probably the best thing you could find in your local area. Probably most of you can think of that, but like it just goes on. I think it cost me, I hate to say it, beating you in Lambeau Field when you were kind of injured and uh, not at your peak fitness because I was inefficient on running down the stairs as much as up as anything. And I think I lost a lot of time there. I didn't hit one stair workout, and it cost me, I think.
0: Yeah. And you had a better engine but I had spent more time on stairs.
1: Yeah, you were much more race specific and that ultimately won.
0: You would have beat me at any form of fitness that day other than stair running, specifically downhill cadence on different types of stairs. And that's that's really unfortunate if someone tries one race and that's their one experience. And you can eliminate that by spending time on stairs. Yeah. And the leg strength argument is one I hear a lot especially from people who work with a trainer rather than an endurance coach. And they say, listen, every single stair is a mini single leg squat. And so you need to be able to squat and split squat heavy in order to be able to do that. And there is some truth behind that. However, if you took a power lifter and you took a skinny, weak endurance runner and had them race to the top of the Empire State Building, who's going to get to the top first? Every single time it's going to be the endurance runner. Mm -hmm. And that is the sad truth for powerlifting. And it's the uh, kind of the placating truth for endurance runners who think endurance is king. Well, you have to do anything else and you're going to crumble. And the powerlifter is going to say, I don't want to be a runner to get better. But the truth is somewhere in the middle, right? Yep. You have to work your strength output. But at the end of the day, 30 minutes in... Your strength's not going to be accessible unless you have an aerobic engine behind it. You're the expert. I agree. We, Kirk, we're the expert.
1: When it comes to stadium, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass that to you. I know enough. Don't get me wrong.
0: I accept. Mm-hmm. I've heard you reference the 60 minute max incline test. We like to call that max gain, spelled with a Y, like the great iconic classic Mark Wahlberg movie Max Payne. I call it max, max Payne pain slash gain. Max pain gain?
1: Well, like with a forward slash in there.
0: I'm okay with that. Okay. Just making but sure you got to take things and make it your own. What is the grade of incline that you run at to get the best results? That's another good question. It's not 15%. For most people, it's not. It is not. It's just too high of a turnover.
1: It's too high a power output. For me, the sweet spot's 30% and I just play with the incline. Because I can run thirty, but I can also power hike it efficiently at forty. It's a lot harder to run efficiently, but much easier to power hike. Thirty is that sweet spot where you can do both. Sometimes even at the same speed with the same cardiac response. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's thirty percent. But I think I think the sweet spot's anywhere between twenty and thirty, and I would argue twenty-five to thirty. But that's my own personal bias. What about you?
0: You hear it talked about like the Goldilocks zone, right? The Goldilocks grade. That is the like not too hot, not too cold, just right. And people who do vertical running, specifically vertical Ks where it's a kilometer, 1,000 meters of elevation gain, that's the race. They talk about what's your optimal, what's your Goldilocks running? Like what grade is perfect for your stride where it's steep enough that you're gaining feet rapidly, but not so steep that you're just burning out and you can't keep your good cadence. And that's going to be different for everyone, but it kind of progresses with your fitness where mine was always 30, 25 to 30 is my Goldilocks zone. Me too. I can run at that grade and keep a good cadence without blowing up when I'm fit right now. It's 20 to 25 for me. I can't do it at 30. I don't have the engine or the muscular endurance to do so. And early on that might be 15 for somebody, but I think it's the highest grade at which you can still run is your Goldilocks zone. I also firmly believe that intervals are the only way to truly max out your max gain test because 60 minutes pegging it is so hard to do for the non-professional athlete who doesn't know their body super intimately. And you like, what's the odds you choose the exact right exertion the whole time? But you can get closer to that by alternating between two incline percentages. I usually do 30 and 22 and a half back and forth, back and forth. And you can usually go back and forth, keeping it pegged and get closer to your true potential.
1: Yeah. Anytime I've done that and been successful and happy, it's always been, all right, I'm going to spend five minutes at 30% and three miles an hour. And then I'm going to spend one minute at 30%, two miles an hour. And no matter how I'm feeling, I get there. And then if in the last 15 or 10, I feel like I can push through without that interval needed, Um, But I honestly, it's a trial and error test. You're never going to do your best. You could do it one day and do it the next week, physiologically being no better than you were the week before and do better week two than week one, just because of know-how and familiarity. It's one of those that you just need to have a few throwaways to really get dialed in.
0: And that is why I almost always use the same strategy because it's the only way for me to test my actual fitness and my increase in ability Is by holding myself to the same parameters so if i go 30 22 and a half 30 22 and a half the whole time the only thing that can change is the miles per hour at each one then i don't get better at at the workout i actually show what my fitness is otherwise you're right you can have a ton of different strategies and they all are different yep anyways it's not the best test in the world a 60-minute time trial, if you can nail it, is a fantastic test, but it's just so difficult to get right until you've had a good amount of training and practice at it.
1: But you can't fake a good score in it. It's one thing that you can't fake. So it, it's still like an honest truth, it, yeah. especially if you've done it a few times.
0: I, I would say it's not a lab test, but it's a great field test where even if you get it wrong... If you're fit, you're going to get a good score. And if you're not, you're going to get a bad score. And you might be able to improve the score, but you're still in a range that tells you what you need to know.
1: Well, for people wondering then, let's go male and female, uh, pro competitive open, uh, pro age group open. What do you think good numbers are? Like how much vert in an hour would you consider A standard, B standard and C standard for men and women?
0: I think for a man, you've got to be well over 4,000. I think A
1: standard is 4,000. If you're going over 4,000, you deserve to be on the pro start line.
0: Yeah. World class is hard to say. So it could be 5,000. 4,500, 5,000. But if you can crack 4,000 feet in an hour, you're not going to be out of your league at a mountain race. I agree. For women, I'd probably drop it down 500 feet.
1: 3,500,
0: yep. Yeah. And then I keep dropping in increments of 500 for the other classifications. Yep. Couldn't agree more. Okay. Whew. You have me a little sweaty with that question. That's the exact numbers I was going to throw up. All right. So yeah, start at the top. 4,000 for men, 3,500 for women to feel like I can compete with top level runners in the mountains. You may not be the winner, but you won't be out of your depth in the field. And then 500 feet down for each level below that.
1: Well, I think three weeks before Tahoe, I did the max gain... And I think I was like 43 or 4,400 feet. And that was roughly in contention for top 10 in the world throughout the race. Like I was vying for that spot with a 43 or 4,400. So that's like perspective. If you're doing 4,000, maybe you'd be vying for a top 30 spot at the world champs, maybe or something like that, which means you belong there. So.
0: And I think in before I did Killington 2018, when I was coming back from my hamstring injury, And I would say at about 85 to 90% of my max fitness, I think I did aerobically 36 or 3,800 feet, or I didn't go anaerobic. So again, that that kind of aligns. Mm -hmm. If I was aerobically 3,600, I was probably close to 4,000 max and you were at 4,300 and you were, you're better than me at that type of work generally. And you were in better fitness. So I think that tracks. Yeah. It's a good workout though. Sure is.
1: Sucks. Have a towel so all your sweat doesn't end Ugh. up turning your treadmill belt and do a slip and slide, which is
0: what happened to me. I lost for sure some time at the end there. I keep a towel on each on each handle because one doesn't cut it. I put a headband on I head. had
1: one and that was my mistake.
0: When I do that test, a little aside here, I wear a super, super light, airy compression top long sleeve. And then I wear a, a headband. So that otherwise your arms are just flinging sweat down onto the track. Oh. And you're right. If you're at an incline, it gets slick. And I do that one in my VJs because that rubber is just the best for gripping a wet treadmill.
1: I think, did I tell you this on or off air? I forget about how I was slipping on my treadmill doing incline work this, uh, this summer. And I said, screw it. I got a new pair of VJ Sparks in um, ahead of time. And it's like, well, it's not meant for the treadmill, but I'm slipping like crazy. The whole track was wet with my sweat. There was an ounce of dry. I put on my VJ Sparks at 30%. Didn't so much as slip a millimeter on every push off. And then I tested other VJ shoes. They're all the same. And I had, you know, I had a road pair of shoes on on there, which has great contact. The whole shoe contacts the belt, whereas the Spark only the lugs do. And that's my go-to now. The VJs for any incline work that I know I'm going to get sweated up. That rubber's amazing.
0: 20% and above, I'm in VJ. Even things like I have a pair of Adidas Adios and they use Continental rubber on the bottom. Same result. I have uh, some razor, sketchy razor with Continental rubber. I think they have, con- do they have Continental or Michelin. Michelin. Michelin, Michelin. Yeah. And Continental rubber, both. It just doesn't do what VJ's Butyl rubber does. Does not. I agree. And the Butyl rubber is heavy. But you know how they're using that thin shave down strip of just like millimeter thin rubber on high end racing shoes now. Yeah. Oh, if they could do that with uh Butyl. Be sweet. That's your wet that that'd be your wet concrete racing shoe right there. Yeah. Where would your perfect race venue be? Where? Let's 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 do two things. One ideal, just like prettiest best thing you could think of. And then the other would be what would suit your skill set the best.
1: Oh I like uh A high humidity, decently hot, um, Midwest or East coast style race, uh, that feels like home, uh, terrain aside, I guess I just enjoy, I run well hot and I run well in humidity and I run well when I walk to the race venue and it doesn't feel any different than walking to my local training grounds. I think that's a comfort comfort food right there for you. So I would just say like snapshot that would be that'd be it for
0: me. All right. Pick one. What's your favorite venue you've ever raced? Any type of running? Uh, my favorite venue,
1: experience-wise or what suits me? Both. Uh, well, well, experience-wise, I, if anybody argues with me about West Virginia, you're wrong. So <laughs> simple as that. West Virginia is the most balanced course in the country. I was really bummed I missed it this year. Um, what suits me would be a dry year in Chicago, a dry year. I go down to Austin, Texas, or a Florida race where I can just run on smooth terrain and and let gravity do the work with that little forward lean I've got. Um, something flat, something fast, an hour-long super or less. That'd be my, my course. What about you?
0: Well, my, fa- my two favorite atmospheres I've ever raced in were actually both on the track. Drake Relays and uh, North Central College Twilight Meet. You're cheating. We we knew they were asking about OCR. No, they're not. This could be just a regular running question. Well, I took those are my two best best uh, atmospheres I've ever had in my life. Well, I took it as OCR specific. That's your problem. Clearly, uh, OCR. It's got to be something that changes. I want to be in and out of bushwhacking, in and out of ravines, some steep climbing, some flat running, but I want the terrain. And the type of stride to change every 30 to 90 seconds. So it would be an old Illinois course in Marseilles. It would be a Asheville. It would be a, if there was a sprinter super in West Virginia, uh, the Montana sprint, those kind of things suit me well. Where no one who has a massive, because I don't, I think I'm a jack of all trades, master of none as a runner. And so anything where someone's skill sets better than mine cannot expose me for longer than like two or three minutes. I've got to move to the other person's skill set. I can bounce between their skill sets, but if I have to play their game the whole time, I'm screwed. I would argue
1: you are a master of 30% downhill technical running. You're not a jack of that trade. You're a master of that. I would also argue that you are a master of the low crawl in a stadium race because you look like a wild animal going under that thing. <laughs> most impressive athletic, most impressive athletic feat I've ever seen to date in the race. <laughs> Was the low crawl in Lambeau Field. You put 30 meters on the field in 20 seconds, which isn't even possible in a low crawl. It was incredible. You were gone and out of sight by the time we hit the first corner.
0: I appreciate and I accept your compliment, but I feel like it reinforces my point, which is that's not a a bankable skill because there's no race where you do that for 20 minutes.
1: Hey, every second counts.
0: Whereas like uphill running at 10%, that's a bankable skill. Flat ground running, that's bankable. A low-speed bear crawl, that's not a bankable skill. It's a feather in your cap. A 35% rocky downhill, that's a super cool skill to have at a point in a race. But there's never a time that you'll spend more than a quarter of a race doing that one skill. So
1: Okay. Reject my compliments, then. I don't care. No,
0: I accept that. Them. them a little. I think it just makes my point that I have to jump from thing to thing. Yeah. If we could start at the top of, like... Killington and run straight to the bottom through hitting all the worst terrain and do that for 20 minutes maybe that would be a good race but might be a world champ could have been all state in high school Kirk <laughs> that, <laughs> that doesn't even make sense <laughs> I'm just living on things that never happened right
1: I agree alright
0: let's see here I've my lay, lower legs have been injured pretty much since 2018 hey there friend hello hello I've just foolishly powered through and kept re-injuring. Pay now and pay later. Anyway, finally bought a Peloton about six weeks ago and had been pedaling like a madman. Due to the low impact in the legs, I was able to make big strides in performance pretty quickly, but when I decided to run this past Friday, before the New Jersey Super on the weekend, as a warm-up for the race, my legs were tighter on race day than they've ever been in my life. I've often had issues where my calves tighten and even cramp now and again, but Friday, like a half mile in, my thighs were cr- hurting and on the verge of cramping. I've never had this before. Was I spinning wrong? Was it the bike or coincidence? Not coincidence, unfortunately. Not coincidence. No. You made your own bed.
1: Yeah. Um, I see you want to say something so you can go ahead. But No, I'm waiting. I'm
0: waiting until you're... I'm, I'm curious about what you're... This is a slack jaw in awe of whatever's about to come out of your mouth. This isn't a... My mouth's half open to spring a word out. Well, that's kind
1: of our clue when we interview people. When you want to say something, you know, the mouth opens slightly. I start
0: playing airplane. Like, are you going to feed me like a baby?
1: Yes. And then I know, all right, Bracken's up to bat next. So I'll shut my yap after this. So (laughs) so, so, (laughs) those are the visual cues we need to go off of. And more often than not, folks, we talk over each other. And then Bracken edits that shit out.
0: That's right. Don't you,
1: Bracken? We'll blame it on
0: connection issues.
1: Yeah, we always can do that. Um, so, I mean, it's man, I feel for you. First of all, I've gone through a number of periods of time in my life where i biked exclusively mostly due to injury, but also a short period of time in the mid two thousands where I only bike cause I wanted to. And I, I, um, I dabbled with joining a local bike club and actually racing. And so I was riding every day with people that were better than me and I didn't run for like two, three months. Then I decided, you know what, like I'm good, but I'm not nearly as good as these guys. And I want to go back to running. I missed it. And I went back out to running and I decided, oh, I've been going for two, three, four hour bike rides. I can go run eight miles with my friend who was also biking with me to this day. That was the absolute worst run of my entire life. I felt good for about a mile. And then I felt like every muscle in my body was completely tight, seized up. I was sore for like five days. That was a flat run on concrete. And it was horrible. My resistance to impact went to zero. Okay, nothing. And my muscles, my hamstrings, my glutes were so tight from being in that bike position all the damn time that I couldn't even open up my stride. Biomechanical efficiency was completely lost. It was gone. My body, body didn't even know how to fire efficiently at that capacity, let alone have any resistance to impact. Put me on a course like Killington now with elevation. It's a recipe for disaster. I believe you lost your true resistance to impact. And that bike position, if you are not thoroughly working your range of motion, have you ever watched bikers run like true bikers run? It's an embarrassment. Watch Lance Armstrong run his first marathon. He looked like an old man. The reason is, is because he's so tight as shit from that crouched position. His rear chain is a mess and he has no resistance to impact. Let's say you even did that for four to six weeks. You're screwed. Now, if you were coming out of that, adding in two, three runs a week, and biking to supplement as you were transitioning, different story. Your body's gonna acclimate over the next few weeks. It was just too soon. And so you probably if I was talking to you, I would have been like, hey, you're gonna be in for a
0: tough one. So just grind it out because that's how I feel about that. What do you have to say? I'm I mean you you nailed it. You nailed it. If I had leave any legacy behind <laughs> as a coach, you got three kids. Really. You you already got your legacy. As a coach. <laughs> I want it to be for the work I've put in on compromised running and resistance to impact. I look at like the the trifecta of human performance oftentimes is looked at as speed, strength, endurance. And I would add in resistance to impact. I agree. That is my fourth thing that unlocks your ability to use the others. And that alone right there, not impacting the ground. When you do it, it is so destructive the first time or two. And then the other thing is, it is a proven fact that muscles can shorten if you don't take them through range of motion and if you keep them on tension in a certain range of motion. And we, downhill running and flat running, can come through almost entire full extension of the leg. And you never, ever do that in a pedal stroke. Ever. In fact, they, they advise against it. And so you're just naturally not going to hit the same range of motion and you're going to have this tension and Kirk's right. It shuts down your rear chain.
1: Mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, if if you're in that position where, okay, it's the, uh, hand you've been dealt, you are injured, you're stuck on the bike. As long as that injury can handle some resistance to impact type work, uh, like reverse box jumps, for example, any sort of real pounding, put some weights in your hands and hit dynamic jump lunges or scissor lunges, uh, broad jumps, things like that, where you're really impacting the ground. It's not going to get you all the way there. Cause nothing will replace the consistent rhythmic impact of running, but it would be a start and then really working your range of motion so that you keep some of that. So the bike doesn't turn you into a tight little monster. That's what I would say,
0: I agree. Cool. I have nothing more to add to that. Neither. Nothing at all. All right. Please shorten this up. If you can. <laughs> Nope. I'm going to read the whole thing. I've recently completed my first marathon and my question is about nutrition. My gut is super sensitive. So I only used one cliff block, a single block every two to three miles. Just shy of two packages, 11 blocks total for the race. Race went fine for the most part, but last four-ish miles, my hamstrings got really close to cramping up. I got those early cramp twinges and even some light cramping that I was able to run through and got them to loosen up, but I had to back off the pace a fair amount and then run super gingerly for a while each time it happened. How do you know if these cramp issues are due to lack of fitness versus lack of nutrition? Is there a way to tell? I know I put my, pushed my fitness to the limit, so guessing it was that, but how do you know if you're getting enough in? Very good question. We've addressed this in some capacity several times, but never this specific angle.
1: Yeah. Well, it's fitness
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> given
1: unless there's an extenuating circumstance like hyponutremia where you've overloaded on water and flushed out electrolytes. So you actually don't have a good cellular balance. Uh, most like you haven't run that hard for that long on that hard surface and it bit you. Um, sure. You're like, you're going to start bleeding time when like metabolically you start slowing down and you can't keep that effort. But the whole cramping, tying up thing, so rarely, so rarely because of lack of nutrition or electrolyte imbalance, it really is. So aside from a few extenuating circumstances.
0: Kirk, do you know the nutritional value of one cliff chew?
1: Yeah, it's probably 15 to 20 calories. It's actually
0: a little higher. I was surprised when I found this out. It's 33 calories per block. Okay. Which puts her at 330 calories for 11 blocks. Carry the one, maybe. Check my math. So if you have 330 calories, that is at the upper limit of what most normal people's guts can ingest in one hour of exercise, given enough water. Yep. I don't know what your finishing time was, and that will play into this. But if you were under four hours, in theory, that's an acceptable amount of calories to take in. On the low end of acceptability. Very low end. I would like it to have been double that. 600 I would suggest looking into liquid calories in the future, but it's possible to get through a marathon on that depending on how hard you're pushing. The fact that you never cramped you struggled with it, but you were able to push through it, to me says it's not electrolyte. Because in my anecdotal personal experience, electrolyte cramps keep you from reaching your fitness potential because it just goes and you can't get back to your fitness. Fitness cramps, you get to the end of your rope and things start going. So the fact that you were able to not cramp means it wasn't electric. Uh, electrical. It wasn't uh, electrolyte based in my book, but I mean, I certainly could be wrong on that. I would say that they certainly didn't help each other. Only taking in 330 calories over the course of three to four hours is certainly not enough for optimal performance, but let's also not confuse fueling with electrolyte balance in your body. Yeah. That's that. I agree with all of that. I like your
1: take. Yeah. We've just hit on that like from a number of different angles, a number of times. So I think that was enough.
0: I think one of the toughest things to deal with for endurance athletes is the touchy stomach, because it's one of the only things that you can't beat through just will and determination. Some people can, but it's not like, oh, I can just run more volume or I can hit my intervals or I can run like there's a chance your stomach just rebels every single time, no matter what. And that's, I feel for people like that.
1: I haven't found a person yet who's done enough experimenting that that hasn't fallen into something that works for them. I mean, if it's a soggy ham and cheese sandwich in your pocket, like my athlete Natasha Manziel, maybe that's the trick. If it's baby food pouches, our friend Mike Ferguson, peanut M&M's. Hmm. He would carry along in races and things like that. If you play around enough, you're going to somehow find something. It might not even make sense. Uh, to what others do it may be chocolate chips it could be uh, almond butter packets which again isn't great fuel but if it's enough to just keep you where you're at then that works so like i would heavily suggest it could be fresh fruit juice that you actually juice in a juicer and you got your apple combo in your in your hydro flask like things like that go a really long ways just do more trial and error and you'll find you will find it
0: yeah it's one of those i mean i've Probably three different times in my life, gone into like REI or someplace and just spent 30 to 50 dollars and grabbed a handful of everything and just gone out and started testing, because sometimes you just have to make sure you know what you know and find out what you don't know. 100 percent.: How long does a good warm-up stay with you? My race venue is an hour away, and I can never warm up properly at the venue. I want to come back to that point. If I do my warm-up at home, would it be completely gone by the time I get to the venue? I know I should try this out and test it out, but I don't really have that kind of time.
1: Well, the answer is no, it's not completely gone, in my opinion. Uh, It's the reason that sometimes on race morning, a lot of high-end elites will get out and go for a 20-minute run in the morning, and they might not race until noon or 1 or that night because they think there's something to stoking the system and just getting that fascia loosened up, even if that means they're going to be stagnant for hours afterwards. I've never done it personally, but I know people who do. And I assume it's for good reason, right? However, very, 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 very unideal because those people are also doing a proper warm up before their race that they have later in the day.
0: And they're doing big volume and they're doubling already in training. So they're used to it. Correct. So, um, I mean,
1: sitting in the car for an hour is not, not great. If that's going to be it, maybe if you have a mile walk to the venue and you can do some jogging, maybe that'll get you halfway there, but I don't like it. I don't like it one bit, and I don't really understand what you mean by you can't get a good warm up in at the venue, sir or madam. That's uh, excuse land for me, um, in my honest opinion.
0: I get it. Uh, you probably don't get your ideal or preferred warm up, but I firmly believe that if you put me in a Portageon, I could warm up for a race. It wouldn't be ideal.
1: I would like you to put that. Theory to the test sometime. <laughs>
0: <laughs> if I got locked in a Portageon and they said, Sorry, help's coming, but it's not gonna get here until ten seconds before your race, I think I could get myself ninety-five percent of the way warmed up compared to a full outside warm-up.
1: There would be a lot of speculation as to what was going on inside of that porta potty, I bet.
0: It wouldn't be pretty, but yeah, I I've I, I believe it. And we've all been in places at some competition where you're in a holding corral for 20 minutes prior to your warm up yep. or to your race. Like you can't get it all done. So yes, an early aerobic effort with stretching and mobility will get you greased and ready to go. I wouldn't go anaerobic at that at all. I wouldn't do any strides. I wouldn't do any plyo because that kicks off systems that you don't want to kick off yet. And then once you get there, you can, in a standing in a three by three area, you can do a fair amount of plyo and dynamic movement. You might have to get creative. You might have to do, you know, line drills back and forth in a 10 foot area, but there have been, again, stadium races or different styles of races where I've done a full warm up, but instead of doing my 30 meter back and forth, I'm doing nine feet back and forth of warming up. It's doable. Not ideal. But again, this is why I know I sound neurotic sometime about these things, but I practice these things. You know, like I said, there's times where I say, All right, you have 12 minutes before your first rep. Condense your warm-up and go. And you learn that day. It might be worth putting yourself taping out a square on the ground or saying you can't leave this yoga mat. This is your space. Get a full warm-up in and then start your workout. And you might just be surprised. I like that. I also think. I
1: understand how this seems to be a uh, situation currently, because for example, if you show up to a Spartan race venue, they weren't letting you in until a half an hour before your start time, which really cramped people's styles. And they allowed that to win. They got into the venue. They panicked immediately, felt like they were short on time, cut through everything out the window, just enough time to use the porta potty and get their race shoes on and fix their bandana and then go to the start line. But like, you're missing the point there. Every elite, once we got figured out was like, Hey, I'm going to park my car. I'm going to do my warm-up from the car, get at least 10 to 15 minutes of aerobic work in, get sweating, then check in, get my wristband that half hour before, and then polish off my warm-up inside. And there's a lot of things most, like a lot of like age groupers and open waivers just didn't do. They're like, well, I can't get in the venue yet, so I'm not going to start my warm-up. And that's crap. You can start your warm-up before getting your wristband. And so most of us started the process before being allowed in. Now I think those rules have laxed a little bit, but I understand the confusion there, but it's not an acceptable one to to, you know, put off your warm up or not do it at all.
0: I ran a race at a festival one time on festival grounds. And so I stopped the car at the closest place to the festival that I could legally park my car at, and I did a warm up right there. And then I got back in the car, drove there, got checked in and went to the start line and did the best I could to stand there. There, there are, there's wiggle room around a lot of these things and sometimes you just got to get creative. I don't want you to think we're harping on you, but I want everyone to understand that when you're dealt lemons, sometimes you just warm up in a pot at Port-a-John. You've never done that
1: to clarify. If anybody's done that though, I'd like to hear about it. That'd be a good story. I, I'd want to know the why as much as the how. Sometimes pushing hard enough can feel like a little bit of a warm-up. Maybe somebody was a little backed up. I don't know. Certainly could be. Start sweating in there. Yeah.
0: I did fart licks today, but instead of focusing on speed, I set a metronome to 180 and worked on cadence instead. That naturally led to fast-paced minute blocks. But is this something that I can combine like that, or should I be keeping speed work just to that and drilling cadence separately? Good question. Um, yes,
1: I think. Um I think cadence work is actually best started, Uh, and I'm still lukewarm. I go back and forth on it, you know, Um, but cadence work is best started on your recovery days, believe it or not. Because sometimes naturally, you know, ideally you have this roughly 180 strides per minute average based on elite marathoners from 1982 or whatever the heck that study was. But um, sometimes faster paces just lead to faster cadence than 180 and sometimes it doesn't. And so focusing on your recovery days is absolutely the place where most people suggest you start mastering that first, because higher speeds typically lead to a faster cadence naturally, where you really need to fight it is on those recovery days when you naturally have a lower lumbering more cadence. So um, you should start there if that's a thing you think you need to be working on is recovery day cadence.
0: Richard Diaz and I disagree on some things and we agree on some things. And this is one of these that we agree and disagree on. And we, it's like the opposite side of the same coin where he's said in the past, and I don't want to put words in his mouth because I've had that done to me and it feels terrible, but I think I'm saying this correctly. So Rich, if I'm saying this incorrectly or anyone who knows Rich, tell me afterwards, I'll, I'll address it. I think we've had a track record of being okay saying we're wrong and here's what we really meant. Mm-hmm. But I've heard him say, and I think in a conversation with me that people don't belong running workouts until you run correctly. And I, I don't see anything inherently wrong with that. But I'm of the belief that let's do them both together. Because sometimes life is not a lab experiment. You're just not going to stop people from doing it. So I think you're just as well off sometimes better sometimes worse to build both at the same time but run workouts where that rep ends when you're no longer running perfectly and so I think it is a good time to practice it I don't know if fartlick's the best time I like it better for like 30 30 or 60 60 work where it's a, a very defined time and you just focus on doing one thing perfectly during that but why couldn't you do it on a fartlic so I'm actually okay with working on form and cadence because my belief is that quality runs should be run with the stride you plan on using during a race. And you shouldn't plan on using a crappy stride during a race. So I'm actually okay with doing both concurrently because you shouldn't practice bad strides anyways. And I think that's where Rich and I would agree is don't practice running crappy, practice running well and extend the time you can run well for.
1: I think the hard thing with that though, is like most people that are running crappy don't know they're running crappy and they have a hard time distinguishing. Like when that form is breaking down, it's very hard to see when you're only looking through your own eyes and not at yourself from afar. And so it's like always a tricky thing. You have to be so in touch with your body and your mechanics and how your feet sound when they hit the ground, where your breathing is at, how your arm carriage is going, like all of those things. So it's like tricky. I'm not saying you're wrong because you're definitely right, but it's also one of those things where it's like, Super how tricky. do I even know? they right. But I do know like on a recovery run, typically things aren't falling apart. And so that's why I just feel like that's a safer bet in my eyes to start. But I also agree you should never be running like shit.
0: Yeah, as Rich likes to say, and he's right. And this is again, like stepping back even further. This is why in the times when I've tried to revamp and smooth out my stride, I do all of my quality work on the treadmill in front of a mirror where I can look forward and sideways and get my visual cues. That will match up to my feeling of my stride so that by the time I feel like I've got a handle on this, now I can step outside in those physical cues that I watched, I can now feel. And I think if you're gonna do it, you might as well just do it right. We established last episode that you like looking at yourself in mirrors, bracket. Oh my goodness, do I? Don't ever go shopping with me. I just you can look back and I'm just like dazed. It's an all all day event. Yeah. Keep him away from mirrors. All right. Here's a question that I don't want to answer, but I want to verbalize that I'm not going to answer this question. What road racing shoe would you recommend for over pronation in half marathon distance? I decided on the Hoka Arahi 5 for recovery runs. Any other additional advice would be great. I am so in love with shoes that I will not tell you which shoes to buy. Because I think anyone who says, you'll love this, you've got to try this, don't actually know their craft.
1: Hmm. It's
0: like the other day I was camping and someone said, uh, oh, you got to try this IPA. And I said, I don't like IPAs. And they said, I've heard that. This one is the best ever. This will change your mind on IPAs. And I tried it and it tastes like every other crappy IPA I've ever had. (laughs) And what it showed me is that they can only see things through their mindset. And if you truly know something, you know that it doesn't work for everyone. And Kirk, I truly know shoes. I'm not going to brag about a lot in this world, but I know shoes. But what I don't know as well is pronation control because I like avoiding it whenever possible. And so if you truly need it, I'm not the one for you. I think you have to feel out a shoe and find if it works for you. So I will not give you a pronation control racing shoe advice because it's as likely to be wrong as it is right. Well, there's nothing wrong with pronation. And when you say
1: overpronation, I just assume that means you're like a very heavy pronator, I would assume is what overpronation means. I assume they don't mean supination, which would be the opposite. Um, So overpronation, like there's nothing wrong with pronating. We all pronate. That's part of our shock absorption and energy dispersal into our next stride and push off. So if it's a racing shoe and I don't know enough about shoes so I can give advice here, I guess How that works (laughs) Yeah. is I would actually, if it's a racing shoe, I would forget about worrying about your pronation, go with a neutral racing type flat. If it's truly the tool for that job, because it's okay to pronate, it's going to give you a smoother push off in my opinion than changing the way your foot hits the the ground, which is in my opinion, less efficient. So um, I don't know if you need anything special if you're not struggling with injury. Yeah, And that's my C-level knowledge versus your A-plus valedictorian shoe
0: knowledge. Thank you for for recognizing this, Kirk. I'm kind of buttering you up a little bit today, aren't I? Yeah, you you must think I need it. Maybe because I'm slow right now. (laughs) No, that's not true at all. I, I don't know why this is happening. Well, here's the thing. Kirk, not all pronation control is equal. Just like not all... 10 mil drop shoes feel the same. Not all 30 foot or 30 mil stack shoes feel the same. It's all different. And so supination control is not the same shoe to shoe and over pronation control is not the same shoe to shoe. And people's strides are not the same. I think, I think there are two types of people with inappropriate pronation, whether it's, it's over pronation or if it's supination, there are those who run poorly and those who are made poorly. Some of us are just put together incorrectly. You know, we see this all the time. It ranges from birth defects to slight oddities in our body. Some of us just have imperfections in terms of skeletal skeletal structure. And you can't do anything about that. So there are people who absolutely need the correct support under their foot to be able to run without injury. But those are the people that should not take internet advice. Those are the people who need to see an athletic podiatrist and have someone really analyze their their foot and make the correct insert for them. And then there are people that run incorrectly. And those are the people that should not use any sort of pronation control because you can fix that in the gym and you can fix that in the mirror. Some people still can find it, but because each pronation hits slightly differently where it sits along the, the path of the foot and how intense the support is. It's just impossible for me to recommend. I can recommend lines of shoes to people, but not specific shoes. And so I won't. I'm
1: going to stop myself here.
0: Okay. That's probably way too long of an answer, but I think it's important that you don't go out and run in the shoe people tell you to run in. I agree. You go out and you try on the shoe people tell you to run in and you see what happens. I ran in two different shoes that have pronation support. One was the Asics Gel Kayano and one was the Brooks Adrenaline GTS. God, did I hate the Keano? I hated the Keano. It was so pretty. It was so comfortable. And it gave me such terrible IT band issues. Uh, Debilitating. It
1: me well either.
0: Oh. It knocked me out of freshman running. I did not finish my track season. Brooks GTS, it's a very similar shoe. No issues. For me, it felt like a supportive, neutral trainer. And I ran in it for three years. No issues. I ran in that
1: shoe as well. Much
0: better. You can't even tell it's truly a motion control stability shoe. So my point is, if one of them knocked me out of running and the other one supported my stride, how could I possibly give you advice? Because I couldn't pick the right shoe because they said to do the same thing. I'm with you. All right. Now we got some some active exercise fizz questions here for you. All right. All right. All right. When trying to build capillary beds, what is the more what is the more efficient way to go about it? Should you do one long effort, say two and a half to three plus hours, or will multiple short efforts yield the same results? And to dovetail off that question, if you do an hour in the morning and an additional hour in the evening, do you get the same adaptation as two-hour long single? Great question. I will just start out by saying, I don't know if anyone ever sets out to build capillary beds. <laughs> right, right. Like you don't set out to increase red blood cell production by exercising. It is a byproduct of what you do. So I understand that we've talked about what the benefits of exercise are, but you cannot aerobically exercise without working on mitochondria and, and capillary beds and red blood cell and oxy, uh, oxygen use. So it's it's almost like just approaching the question from the other end. It's a byproduct. So basically, it comes back to what's the best way to exercise. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can develop capillary beds being an anaerobic
1: power lifter, to be honest, in a weird way and in its own unique way. So I agree with you in a sense that one way is not the right way. Hard interval sessions that get you anaerobic are going to build capillary beds. Long three-hour runs at a slow aerobic pace are going to help you build capillary beds. Really? It's like tomato, tomato, isn't it? And, and from what I know now, I will say like, I'm not as studied on this as I should be, to be honest, but you'll see most of the literature out there talk about time on feet more than anything, which I find interesting, meaning like long runs, steady runs, even low end aerobic work builds capillary beds. They don't necessarily glorify like the harder lactate anaerobic work, Mm -hmm. although it has to, and it must because your body needs oxygen in those situations. Um, but just like the literature I've read is hinted towards, like, just time on feet, no matter the intensity, seems to do the trick. It's just a slow, slow burn over time. It's nothing. that capillary bed, what's a, what's a decimal smaller than a millimeter and then smaller than that decimal? It's like they're growing so slowly and expanding so slowly that it's just the sum of all parts. It really is. But they talk take capillary beds typically with just, like, time. Time on feet.
0: Yeah, this is an age-old question. Should I do longer single runs or more double runs? And the answer is really yes. It's what what can you handle and what do you have time for? For me, two-hour runs are less destructive than one two-hour run. However, if I'm running hard, one two-hour hard run for me tends to be less destructive than two-hour hard runs. It's just, it's very different. And so it's really starting with, this is the max I can run. So I add some doubles in to help with that, to help get more time on feet. It's a function of of what can I do rather than how should I do it. If I can get eight hours in through singles and 10 hours in through doubles with the same fatigue, then you do the 10 hours of doubles. That's really my answer to this. And and the other things will happen along the way. Uh, In terms of interval training, one of the biggest issues people have is uh, is that interval work, if done hard, and if you don't let the byproducts clear out of the way, it's actually destructive to the muscle. And that's why it's safer when you're trying to build things, if you really want to worry about building, to do it in a non-acidic state. Because you don't have to worry about getting the rest-to-work ratio correct, you can just work. Mm-hmm. So that's probably why it's easier, but yeah, you can absolutely build all these things through interval work as well. Yeah. And aerobic intervals are a thing. If you can't get time on feet, that's another way to do it. Sure. Yeah. I don't really have much to add to that
1: other than like putting in training volume and still following core training principles and doing it consistently over time is going to yield um, some sort of physiological response on a capillary level. um, Albeit very, very, very slow. So you got to be patient there. And you're not even going to know if it's really happening because who knows when their capillaries are branching off and expanding and extending. Like, I can't feel that. I don't know if you can, but
0: someone has to have studied this, but I'm not. I haven't read that study. Yeah, I'm not aware of it. There there has to be a better option. But I mean, everything that there is studies on shows that it's not applicable to 100% of humans. So at the end of the day, it always comes down to find what works for you within the confines of what science knows to be true.
1: Yep.
0: Fridge magnet. Boom. Is there a minimum duration needed for benefits of all these things in a maximum duration where benefits start to drop off? IE minimum 45 minute run, maximum three hours, et cetera.
1: Is this the same? Is this wait?
0: Yeah. Same follow-up to all that. A follow-up to all that. So like if I'm doubling, is it worth it to add a 20 minute run Uh, or do I have to get at least 45 minutes in to have it be beneficial from a systemic view?
1: Well, if you were a basketball player and you were shit at free throws, and you spent an hour shooting free throws in the morning, do you think going out and shooting 20 minutes in the afternoon might actually help? My answer would be yes, it would probably help. It would probably move your needle. Getting more comfortable doing exactly what you're training to compete in is important. So yes, something like that, adding in even a short double or something like that is skill work. um, And it
0: generally pays off. I agree. I think that once the systems have been set in motion, it's probably better to stay in motion. But adding 20 minutes in will absolutely help you. And even if it doesn't work on that biochemical level, it's going to work on efficiency level. Yep. Like you'll never regret more work if it doesn't tip you over yeah. your what I can sustain load. Yeah. One of the best I ever felt with running, I was doubling 20 minute runs three to four times a week in the evening. Just get out, cracking off a quick 20 minutes. And I just felt, I felt my efficiency rise. I felt my running economy just come together. And something about those quick, like second efforts,
1: which almost would seem contradictory, is that it somehow um, propels recovery. Yeah. You think like, oh, I'm spending 20 more minutes on feet. Like I'm going to be even more tired tomorrow. But in a way, it actually helps you recover more from like even what you did that morning. It's actually a very odd thing, but I I challenge you to try it. You'd be surprised.
0: I have personally found that to be true for myself. Yeah, me too. All right. I I think I'm about out here, Kirk. This has been a long episode already. Well, here
1: I have um, a list here Mm -hmm. and I'm going to just check real quick and see if you stole any of mine. However... I don't even think I want to get to them because I have 17 screenshots and there's no way we have time for that right now. Okay. We got ATP questions. We got being satiated, even though they're very hungry all the time. Got a West Virginia reference. We got all sorts of stuff that I just, we're going to have to save it.
0: All right. I actually have a lot more and I'm, I'm sorry to some of these people. I even said, told some we'd get it done. So I'm going to end with what I would consider a, a fun question, Kirk, a personal question. Ooh. At some point, you guys will contemplate retirement from competitive racing. If that point were today, would you be happy with what you've accomplished? Or would you have what ifs that you still feel like there are courses or races out there that you need to prove or conquer? Who asked that question? I don't know the name. I just already put it away. Are they trying to get us to retire? I don't think so. If it were today, please do it.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, clearly you can't pull that back up. Do you have an answer off the
0: cuff? No. I mean, Um, I do. Okay. I mean, yes and no. Go ahead. You start.
1: Well, if you're anything like me, humans listening, um, I don't, this is a question that is really nearly impossible to answer, but. You never really feel satisfied unless you've reached your full potential in anything, whether it's work or being the best husband or whatever, being the best athlete, whatever's important to you. I don't feel like true fulfillment happens until you feel like you've reached your capabilities in it. And with that preface, I would not leave satisfied uh, if I retired today. Um... However, there's a lot of things in life that are, I've left unsatisfied and that doesn't have to have a sad swan song attached to it. Most people leave unsatisfied. I feel like that's more common than people leaving satisfied. And the ones who have left satisfied, um, are probably just putting on their rose tinted glasses to be like, I gave it my best. I had a good run and good experiences and good friends and learned a lot. So I leave satisfied and in a way you can, do I feel like I've reached my potential? No. And I think for obvious reasons, as of to my recent confession and other things, including injury and, and that. So, um, if you're leaving satisfied, that's why old timers keep coming back and they retire three times and they feel like they got to come back. It is for love of sport, but it's also like they feel like they can still do it or can do better. And so, um, unsatisfied would be the retirement, uh, current retirement for me. Will it happen? Maybe. Maybe I'll leave. I'll retire unsatisfied, and that's okay. But right now, I'm not satisfied.
0: Yeah, time changes everything. And current satisfaction is not guaranteed to stay. Even people who you look at them and you realize you got lucky to walk out when you did, because you're aware that it was a fluke and you'll never attain that again. A couple of years down the road, they start to think, was it a fluke? Maybe I could have done this differently in my career. So satisfaction is a tough one. I've had personally a weird, like a mid-career retirement. Where I've gone like three years now without being in any sort of discernible, like top end fitness and without any discernible good results. Hmm. And so I went through the emotions of retirement of, I need this because this is my identity and I need this because I'm not satisfied. And I need this because ego says I need people to know me as a good athlete. And I came out the other side feeling like I'm happy with what I did and I'm happy with what my life is right now. And that has led to a lot of complacency for me. So I almost feel like I could walk away right now and be totally fine. Well, hold on. Complacency or satisfaction are very different. One led to the other. I was satisfied enough that I realized I'm complacent with training. I didn't have a fiery burn consistently. It would come and go, but there wasn't any like one big carrot dangling off. And so I would say, yeah, I could walk off right now, never compete again and be a happy person. And I couldn't have done that three years ago. However, Every athlete has their what ifs, and I have two what ifs, Kirk. And I've I've been thinking about them a lot because I want to really be definite in my motivations for training hard and wanting to compete again. Because I feel like I am fully there and wanting to compete again. The first is that I don't have as many what ifs as you. I know how could I how good I could be because I got pretty darn close to my like I have a point of fitness where I was fit and I raced and I nailed races. And I Mm -hmm. knew where I was and I knew where I stood. And I understood that even if I wasn't fully to my ceiling, I was close enough to see what my ceiling was. So I have that. And so it's a two-part question off that. The first is, what could I do in all the other races that I didn't race during that time? So like during my best fitness, I didn't run a 5K. I didn't run a half marathon. I didn't run a marathon. I think I could have run pretty well at all of those. So I'd like to know, A, can I get back to that fitness? And if so, can I... What could I do at the races that I should have been running if I wasn't so fully focused on a few specific things during that time? So time-wise, I have some things I'd like to hit. I've maxed out my 800 to within a second or two. Mm -hmm. I've maxed out my mile to within four or five seconds. Like I maybe not hit my max, but I know where that is. I'm not breaking 410 anytime ever. That's just not my, that's not in my build, but I've never run my 5k at my best level of fitness, that kind of thing. But the Mm -hmm. other one, the psychological part is I know how good I was and I know how fit I was at that time, but I know I would be a fool to think that the sport has not progressed. So do I still have a place amongst these current athletes with the fitness I had at my best? And if I believe I can return to that level of fitness, then I'll find out that last piece, which is, Am I a product of the time I was in the sport or was I able to compete at other times in this sport? So that, that, that's it. Would my fitness hold up today? And what could I run in other events that I haven't tried before with that type of fitness? So those would be my unanswered. That last one would be the one that would eat at me for some reason. It's the one that intrigues me the most, but it's the one that I understand will be the most painful. Because I know if I'm in my Colorado fitness, I can run 20 seconds faster than my 5K PR. I haven't run a good 10K and I've never run a marathon. So I know there's nothing but positive that comes from that. Right? There's a very painful reality that exists behind door number two, potentially, which is I get very fit and I show up and I realize, yeah, my skill set can't hang with today's athletes. I can pop a one-off race and be top five, but I'm a top 10 to 12 guy. That's just who I am in this day and age. Like that is a painful realization. So it's more intriguing, but there's more of a downfall there where the time chasing, I know I'll hit times as long as I get fit. It's just, will those times mean anything in today's sport?
1: Right. Does that make sense?
0: It makes perfect sense.
1: I feel like what's important to me and what's important to a lot of people is the the conversation of leaving your legacy. And most people leave their legacy through their children, which is fantastic. And then there's other ways to leave your legacy. you know. Even Lindsay Webster, who's considered the GOAT, and maybe Ryan Atkins. If you recall, Lindsay Webster lost her last world championships, yet is still considered the GOAT. Is she going to leave unsatisfied? She said she may be taking a step back. Is she even going to Abu Dhabi? Somebody who's the GOAT could still walk away unsatisfied. But her <laughs> legacy has been cemented in that regard, and it's never going to die, whether she wins another world champ or never steps on a course after OCR Worlds. For me, you know, we're talking this specifically, but I hope that people listening have other layers to their life. If a legacy isn't left, you know, by being a guy who stopped drinking and found his fitness and has this great story, then maybe it's just left by passing knowledge through this podcast or through touching lives and personal training at work. Like there's other ways to leave satisfied. So I don't want it to be like, I feel like there's a little bit of a storm cloud over this conversation for some reason. You know what I mean? Just like a little bit of a hint of it. And it's not true at all. You can leave one thing unsatisfied and not leave a profound legacy there, but you can leave it in other ways of your life. And like that, it's more powerful than anything. So sure, chances of most of us leaving unsatisfied are very strong, but we also are well-rounded humans who can leave legacy and fulfilled in other areas. And that's that's more important than anything, isn't it? Not to get yeah. too reflective. But.
0: Well, I couldn't have had this conversation and this mindset in a healthy place three years ago my identity was far too tightly woven into people know that I'm successful athletically. Yeah. Whereas if I made a national series podium there, I felt validated and worthwhile. And if I missed it, I felt like a failure. And now let's say I come back and I prove that I can, or I can't, it satisfies a personal curiosity, but I think I could, I can now be detached to the point where it doesn't change my perception of me. Yeah. And I couldn't have done that in the past. And so in a way, I'm very thankful for these knee surgeries because they, they, They reset my sense of self. So now I don't feel like a washed up guy saying, oh, I could still do it because it doesn't matter if I can do it or not. It matters. Can I still put in the work and be consistent enough to find out if I can do it? The result doesn't matter, right? The process is what's healthy to me now. And it used to be the process was driven purely by ego and vanity. And I think it's important to get to that point because unless you're the best ever, you're always going to be a failure. In terms of ego and vanity. Yeah. And if you are the best ever, you've probably alienated everyone along the way due to your <laughs> ego and vanity. Outside of like a Lindsay, who's just a fantastic person. She's the exception to the greatest ever rule, right? Everyone else leads a trail of divorce and, and angry people behind them. So I guess long story short, I have some unanswered questions, but I don't feel like I have anything to prove. I have curiosities to to answer
1: Which I would understand.
0: That being said, Tahoe, I have some unfinished business with because I have quit on that mountain several times. Only one DNF, but I've quit in races. And so, yes, I need to get Tahoe off my back. So they keep having it for you. I feel a little bad that
1: we have so many questions left. I'm going to keep questions that were not answered in my queue. I'm not deleting them and we will get to them either. We'll throw a quicker Q&A up without as much time. In between or something, but we'll get those answered. They're not going away.
0: I think we should kick off our next couple episodes with like two questions. Not a bad idea. And then move on. So, so These people deserve their questions answered.
1: I agree. But two hours is it, brother.
0: That's it. I got to eat and I got to run. Whew. Still
1: working on the t-shirts. We'll get back to you on that, folks. But they're they're coming.
0: Get those designs in. Yeah, we haven't gotten any yet. Have we gotten any yet?
1: Nope.
0: Come on, folks. I know there are people more talented at building t-shirt designs than us out there for I sure. know that to be a fact. Yes. All right. Thanks for listening guys. Until next time.